Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 220 with my guest Maddie McVerish. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, fill out surveys, see how other people filled out surveys. You can read blogs. You can uh, support the show. You can buy uh, coffee mugs. You can buy t-shirts. Um, other stuff I'm sure I'm pro- probably forgetting right now. Um, let's jump into a couple. Oh, uh, update on my uh, my withdrawal from Abilify. I think I'm finally completely off of it. I've had a good week. I've been hitting the gym a lot and uh, feeling in a really good mood. Um, thank you so much for your uh, your emails of concern and uh, and support through uh, through that that tough time. You know, I I knew I was going to get through it, and um, I think that's one of the one of the benefits of having had experience with mental illness um, for a long time is that you know there's ups and downs to it, and so when you're in one of the downs. Um, you intellectually, you know that you're going to you're going to come out the other side, um, and it helps because when you're in that when you're in that pit, you feel like you're never going to come out of it because it feels so real and it feels like that's that's going to be your new reality. Anyway, uh, let's get to some surveys. This is a struggle in a survey sentence filled out by Sarah W. And about her depression, she says like being forced to go to a party and people won't let you leave even though you told them you didn't want to be there. That one really struck a chord with me. 
Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Charlie Brown about her anxiety. She writes, heart feels like it's running away. Head feels like it's being filled with helium. I take my hand to my head and ravage my skull. I twist my fat skin until I get welts. I'm falling and just waiting for the concrete. Wow, that is so descriptive. About her anorexia, a toxic boyfriend that I miss in the dark days. Thank you for that. Um, Alex writes about um, her anorexia. As she's a teenager, she writes, If my stomach would just stay silent and not try to ask for help, I could do this. Um, APA writes about uh, her anorexia. My eyes say fat, but my BMI says underweight, and this confuses the hell out of me. Asian Werewolf writes about... Uh, this is a... A uh, snapshot from his life, he writes, I'm finally going to see a musical act that I've been wanting to see for the last 20 years. Just got my ticket. The show is in July. It's now April. I'm already worried about rain, parking, and whether or not a riot will break out during one of my favorite songs. I may have to sell my ticket. I think a lot of us can relate to that one. Uh, this is filled up by a woman uh, who calls herself Mega Man. She writes about her depression, uh, consistently five to ten, ten minutes late for work, and I can't bring myself to wake up that much earlier to get there on time. Oh my God, you completely described my my life. Um, it's just a constant bargaining. There's a really funny comedian named, uh, named Greg uh, Gliana who used to do a bit about that, how you keep hitting your snooze button um, <laughs> and how you bargain with yourself saying, well, if I... If I didn't wear socks, I could sleep another 30 seconds. Uh, she says about her anxiety, I make more work phone calls on Good Friday than usual because I know most offices are closed and I can just leave a message instead of talking to someone. I, there, there is a particular joy to getting uh, an answering machine you know, or a, a message when you know that when you just cannot bear to communicate with another human being. There, there's something so sickeningly comforting about that. Uh, about her binge eating, she writes, anything can be justified in that short time before a binge, and then before you even realize what's happening, an entire bag of sea salt popcorn is gone, and you and you, the thing that was going to... Now there must be a typo. And you, the thing that was going to make you so happy, didn't, and it never will. But you'll do it again tomorrow. Uh, snapshot from her life, a week into a diet, having done really well, stayed under my calorie limit, and I just wanted a treat. So instead of maybe a mini chocolate bar or half a cupcake, I get the big bag of sea salt caramel popcorn at the store down the street and eat the whole thing in one sitting. Uh, well, give yourself points if you actually sat. I don't know about you, but when I uh, just completely lose all control with food. I oh for some reason I always seem to do it standing up in the in the kitchen. Uh and then this one is is a uh this is an awful some moment filled out by uh a woman who calls herself awful lot of falafel. What a great name. And in the parentheses she puts Sarah. Uh she writes I was 28 and had finally gotten so depressed and suicidal that I checked myself into an eating disorder treatment center. Uh, this was no easy feat, and when I called my dad to tell him my decision, he questioned me and shared his concern only for my career and what this would do to jeopardize my future. Oh, my God. Fast forward to family night in the treatment program. 
For the life of me, I don't know why they have us eat together on that night, but they do. After I'd painstakingly made my choice, I sat down at the table with my mom, my dad, and my sister. My dad looked over my plate and proceeded to warn me about all the unhealthy, starchy foods that are in cafeterias, and he told me to choose wisely. My sister kicked him under the table and scolded him when I couldn't. I still think about that moment and how much love I feel for my sister for sticking up for me when I had no words. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that. And it was amazing i'm here with maddie mcvarish am i pronouncing it correctly yeah perfect yeah yeah uh you just got back from walking ten thousand miles across europe to raise awareness and to help stop the silence around childhood sexual abuse yeah yeah where do we and you're wearing a kilt yeah i always wear this kilt yeah you're from uh scotland i'm from glasgow yeah yeah a Glaswegian. A Ouija. Uh, a Ouija. <laughs> so I'll try and speak really clearly. <laughs> I am, uh, I'm so glad that you, uh, I don't know if you got a hold of me, your brother, I think, got a hold of me to uh, yeah. let me know uh, about what you were doing. He was like a huge fan of the show, and he told me for like a year, he's like, you got to listen to the show. And at that point, I was already walking around Europe, so he came out to Budapest, it was, in uh, Hungary. Um, and he drove the follow van behind me for like a month and he downloaded every episode. So it took me a month to walk to Bucharest and in that month I listened to every episode and oh my became God. obsessed, you know. So then by the end of the month I'd, I'd heard your whole back catalogue and I had to wait like everyone else for a Friday to, for the next one, you know. <laughs> so, but it was, it was awesome and yeah, I think I wrote to you at that point. Um, and you said, you know, because I, I finished in February and, and you said just give me a shout if you're in LA. So I'm here this month because it's, Child Abuse Prevention Month in America, so. I wasn't even aware of that. Yeah, well, that's why I got the blue ribbon on my kilt, yeah. So. That's why the kilt's actually blue. People expect oh. it to be tartan, but it's a blue kilt because blue is the color of child protection, so. Where do we even begin with your story? To, uh, we might as well start at the at the beginning. How many kids in your family? Uh, I'm the youngest of seven. So, oh, wow. Yeah, Irish Catholic family. I was raised in uh, just a suburb of Glasgow, and um, I was born... Why do you Why do you say Irish Catholic? Because your, well, your roots my, are originally from Ireland? My dad's Ireland? Scots, my mom's Irish, oh, so okay. that the influence as a child was kind of the Irish Catholic tradition. We spent summers and holidays in Ireland all the way growing up, so there was, you know, the schools I went to were all Catholic, and a lot of the, the priests and stuff were Irish, so... 
Um, but yeah, it was in Scotland, and I was born exactly nine months after Pope John Paul came to Glasgow, which... <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Exactly nine months, so yeah. Dana Gould, a really funny comedian, has a line that he was born nine months after Kennedy was assassinated, and he said, oh, I guess I know how f- my father processes grief. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it was a good day. I think there's a whole there's a whole class of people who are my exactly my age in Scotland. You know, so it was a good day for a lot of people. Uh, so what was family life like? Um, looking back, I mean, like uh, Scotland has changed a lot in the past two decades, which I'm really proud of. But growing up, it was kind of scary. In a Catholic high school, um, I was abused by my my uncle all the way through my primary school and high school. Um, and I guess, like, it wasn't a very, you know, like, there's with that religious conservatism, there was not the kind of opportunity to talk about that stuff. Scottish guys are particularly stoic, and, and they don't show vulnerability very well. So, you know, I was silent until I was 25, really, about all, you know. And so from what age to what age? It, from You said I, from primary school through I high really, school? Yeah, I really don't remember when it started. Like, it, it began when I was so young that I don't even remember the first instance of it, but it was just a regular thing until I was 13. So, like, 1996, March 24th at 4 o'clock. I told them to fuck off. <laughs> so, wow, what did that feel yeah. like? Well, that was a crazy day. I mean, I was... I, he, he, he lived with my gran. He never married, and... um. And they'd moved around a lot, and they'd moved back down into Glasgow, which was a relief because they used to live one street behind us. So he was abusing me pretty much daily. Um, and then he, my grand wanted to move down to the main city, so he was gone. So I didn't see him so much, and I was able to like avoid being alone with him and stuff. But so I was then like second year at high school. I was like thirteen, um, and I guess he hadn't abused me for a couple of months. I managed to avoid being stuck in his car or whatever. Um, and he picked me up and we he under the guise that our other uncle was going to be there our other uncle who was really cool and funny so I went with him and we got there and of course the other uncle wasn't there so it was just trapped in his house again um, and yeah and so it was just the usual you know he kind of undressed me and he was doing what he would do and I kind of faked that I wasn't feeling very well so I went to the bathroom and I looked out the bathroom window but it was in an, we call them tenements in Glasgow it's like an apartment I looked out the window and it was on the third floor and I thought, you know, I could either try and climb down or I can jump. And I was like, if I jump, I'll break both my legs and then everyone will be like, why did you jump out the window? So I thought I would get in trouble. So I went back in and he said, you know, he was like, are you going to do me now? And I was like, you know, that's not happening. So I didn't say anything. I just, I went into the living room and he was one of those guys who would always take his, his change out of his pockets and put it in a bowl. So there was this bowl of money and I needed that to get the bus home because I was like eight miles from my house. So um, he he followed me into the living room and I think I said, you, your fire is on, the gas fire. And he turned around and I just shot past him. And um, and he got a fright. So I, unfortunately, they, they have these storm doors. So there's like two doors. So I got through the first one. I was just getting through the second one and he caught me. And he, he was so frightened. He was so surprised because obviously I just tolerated this forever. And suddenly I was objecting to it. So he got my wrist and he pulled me so hard that he nearly pulled my arm out of my socket. Because um, he was really, you know, surprised. Um, and then he and I were standing in this hallway, like, totally shocked. And I didn't really have a plan, you know. I just stole a few pounds from him to try and get the bus. And um, so he was kind of startled. And, and then we got in his car and he drove me home in silence. And I go into my house and my dad's there. You know, he he worked shifts. And my dad's oblivious to the the situation that we're having, you know. 
And I think at that time I had this little Tetris game. It wasn't a Game Boy. We weren't we weren't that wealthy to have an actual Game Boy. It was one of those crappy little. You set. actually just got blocks from the garage and rearranged them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just the, someone would drop them off the stairs, and I would you know. Uh, time time to start over again. <laughs> so I was addicted to that thing. So I sat like quietly in the corner, and I just played Tetris. And he sat there, and like he and I were aware of the situation. Um. And then Toy Story just came out. That's how long ago this was. And he was supposed to take me and my brothers to see Toy Story that week. And he said, um, he said, I'm going to go now. And I just said nothing. And what was weird, and my dad didn't notice this, he was like, do you want to walk me out? And I was like, what? So I follow him out to the hallway and he, and he says to me, can we still be friends? And I, I was so like choked, I just shook my head. And he said, sort of friends. And um, I shook my head again. Uh, sh- shook it, no. Shook it, no, yeah. yeah. And then and then what I said was, which always annoys me, I said, I'm, I'm not going to the seminar. And I wanted to say cinema, but I was so scared I just yeah. said seminar. And he kind of like, he just left. And then, and so that was it. I was I was 13 and finally it was stopped. And he, the, the annoying thing was then for, for two years after that, I had to act normal. You know, he would bring my gran over and he would be in our house and everyone had no, my parents had no idea that this had happened. And then, when I was 15, so two years later. And, and how much older was he than you? Oh, he was my godfather. I mean, he was like 40 or something. Oh, my God. But two years later, my oldest, because there's seven of us, but he abused four of us. And I, I don't want to talk too much about my brother's journeys because it's not my journey, but they kind of crosses my a lot, and they're cool because I've talked about uh, their our journey a lot in the, on the walk. But my, my biggest brother at that time, so I was 15, and he's 10 years older than me. He was 25. And um, and the first thing we heard was that he was doing his finals at university. He was uh, studying to be a director of theatre and film. Um, and and we find out he's in hospital, you know. And um, and I'm 15, and I've never heard of mental illness. Like I didn't know you could go to hospital for stress. Like what is that? So when I heard he was in hospital, I assumed he's had some sort of terrible accident. And um, I go with my dad down to our local hospital, and we go to the psych ward. And here he is, he's my brother, he's 25, and he'd always been my, I'd always looked up to him, he'd always been, you know, like my my rock kind of thing, because I wanted to get into theatre and he was already studying theatre professionally. Um, And he was in the bed and he was just, he was coming off psychosis, he'd, he'd snapped and he'd basically, I don't know the full situation, but the police had had to arrest him and they'd brought him to hospital realising that he wasn't dangerous, he was just ill. Um. And I think, like, I was sitting with my dad looking at him, and he was—he looked like my brother, but he wasn't talking like my brother. He was talking biblical nonsense, you know? And it was it was really scary, because I'd never witnessed someone in psychosis before. And um, I didn't really understand what was happening until he said to my dad, I was abused by Terry, who's our uncle. And in that moment, I realized, oh, it wasn't just me. So for two years, I'd been, you know, thinking, you know, hoping that he wasn't touching my cousins and stuff. But what did you think or feel in that moment when he said that? I was like, and I don't know where I got this idea from. It was just like, if I don't get help now, in 10 years, I'm going to be in this bed talking crazy. And it scared me so much that it saved me. You know, it saved my life witnessing that. So, because we went out to the parking lot, I would say car park, but for your benefit, I'll say parking lot. Yeah. And uh, what do you guys call it? A car park. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we went out to the car, and my brother followed us out, and um, you know, it was a kind of open psych ward. And I think he was there for six weeks in total, just on sedation, just real, you know, kind of recovering. 
And again, he said to my dad, you know, I was abused by Terry. And my dad said, I know, you, you told me, okay. And um, and so then I was like... Was it your, is he your dad's brother? No, my mom's brother. Okay. And my dad, like, I love my dad. He's awesome. And he's been on a real journey with this whole story. You know, he's, he's really come around. Because I, I, I can't imagine what it must have felt like for him to discover this, that all of his kids were abused by his wife's brother, you know. So um, so we go home and my dad's really quiet. And I'm kind of wondering, like, what's what's going to happen? You know, it's now been spoken out loud. Who's going to, who's you know, what happens now? Is mm-hmm. my dad going to go to the police or is he going to go over and kick his ass or whatever? Um, but the plan was silence, you know, nothing happened. Nothing happened for forever, really. You know, it was just, and it was so weird for me because, like, I'd, I'd spent two years in high school kind of going, you know, because like, I, I, I never really understood what my uncle did to me. I thought, I believed for a long time that he was gay, you know, and that and that gave me a fear of gay people. So I was terrified of anyone who was even effeminate or anything. And the, and the the environment didn't help. Like it was, I kind of, if you can imagine, an Irish Catholic high school in Glasgow in the nineties was a really homophobic place. Um, and it's still in the vernacular over there. Kids still say, "Oh, you're so gay" or whatever when they mean weak. Or whatever. Still, do, they still do here too. And so, you know, I didn't want to tell anyone what my uncle did in case they thought I was because you know willingly involved in that kind of gay contact with a man. Um, and so I, I kind of grew up with this fear of gay people. I believed they were all perverts and I hated, you know, anything that was even remotely um, camp or effeminate. I was just really scared. Uh, so I had a girlfriend, like, a couple months after I got my uncle to leave me alone. When I was 13, I started dating this girl, Cara. And we pretty much dated until I was 20, and that was great. And, and like, when we were 15, we started having a kind of sexual relationship, and that was really difficult because I just... I, I didn't like being touched and I, I didn't I, I just got felt trapped and kind of vulnerable anytime we did any of that stuff and, you know and 15 is quite young I'm supposed to be starting but it's a terrible feeling yeah. it's a terrible feeling but but the scariest thing was in that environment you've got you know all your friends are like oh did you guys fuck last night and so you have to be totally macho and like oh yeah you know but I was terrified of it and it made me feel really uh, scared so but I believed that that if I didn't like what we were doing, it was because my uncle had kind of messed with my head. I thought he'd infected my psyche with, you know, his weird behavior. So I kind of hoped that one day I'd become rich enough and I'd pay the right psychologist to, to cure me of this fear of sex. But in the meantime, with Cara, um, bless her, I mean, she might listen to this, but um, I just decided to become really good at it. You know, <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to be beaten. I'm going to love this. And, I'm, you know, so I just kind of went in and I kind of... Um, would you like dissociate? Would you? Would you be? Well, describe to me what how you coped, what your what you were thinking in your mind and your body while you were going through the motions of having sex. If we were having something, and I I kind of flinched, or if I found myself thinking about kind of like something in my if my uncle came in my mind, or if a guy or whatever, um, I would just become try and become really present in what we were doing. And just, you know, and, and I would have this mantra of like, how lucky am I? You know, here I am, I'm 15 or 16 or 18 or whatever. And I get to do this and there's so many people don't get to do this. And this is amazing. And she was like my best friend. Like, I still adore her. We're really close. And um, um yeah, and so I guess she was very, she's a great person. Um, and she let me be a, a freak. <laughs> she let me just be crap at it and, and learn how to be good at it and stuff. And she never really challenged me or questioned me. And I, 
How, in what ways were you, I know you're being hard on yourself, but in what ways were you a, a, a freak in that you would recoil from or touch sometimes? Well, just like, do you know, really, if you're doing something sexual with someone, a partner, and if, if it becomes like active and passive, if the person's lying there and you're doing something to them, mm-hmm. I would start to get this voice in my head going, am I taking advantage of this person or do they want me to be doing this? And it's like this constant dialogue. And it's, I mean, I'm still not totally dealt with this, but like constantly checking myself um, and having this voice of going, oh, this person willingly letting me do this or they want me to do this and I'm not, I'm not, t- you know, taking advantage or whatever. And, um, and I would kind of keep, keep talking and, and kind of, you know, checking and stuff like that as opposed to just relaxing and having fun. And, I see. You, know. you would be like, are you okay right now? Is this okay yeah. that we're doing this? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. your fear was yeah, that, that, that I was taking advantage or that I was kind of, you know. Was that all in your head? I get, yeah, because she was like, you know, shut the fuck up. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, shut up and get on with it yeah. kind of thing. So she she was amazing. Um, but when I was. and And did she know why? Yeah, I think I told her when I was like seventeen. So that was that was how. So there were a few years where she didn't know. No, no, she didn't know. When we were teenagers, we didn't. She didn't really know. What was her reaction when you told her? Oh, she was great. You know, like it was weird because she was like the second person I told. Um, so like when I was fifteen and my brother kind of had the breakdown and I witnessed that, I felt this urge to get the fuck out of there. I had sorry, I'm swearing so much. Ah, that's okay. In the UK, fuck, I'm fuck, a, fuck, 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 I know. Like, fuck, in the UK, I'm in kids' TV, so I'm so squeaky clean. It's so strange to sit, yeah. on, you know, and, and swear. But um, I left Scotland. I, I would have gone anywhere, but I got offered a job in England, working for a, a theatre company for underprivileged kids. And the money was crap. I mean, it was pretty much full time volunteering. But I was like, I don't care. And I, I went down there at seventeen. Um, and this woman that I worked with called Rachel was there on the first day of my job, and she was just brilliant. And she's again, she's one of the people I love, and she. She knew I was running from something, and part of her job was to take kids from this disadvantaged area to see theatre. Um, and it, I think it was an LA company actually. The Warner Brothers were ch- were touring this big show called Looney Tunes, so it was like Bugs Bunny and all that on stage. And we took the kids to that one night, and then we dropped them all back at their houses. And then she and I, she was like, "Do you want to go and get some food?" And I was just like, "Okay." Um, and we, it was in a place called Wolverhampton, and um, we went for curry because it's very kind of Indian. It's an awesome city. And uh, and I don't know how she did it. She just got me to open up, and she was the first person I ever told. And I expected that, first of all, she won't believe me. Second of all, she'll kind of be weird now that I've told her that and kind of think that I'm gay or whatever. Um, but she just she just didn't flinch. She went, oh, yeah, she like, must, you know, I can't tell her story, but she's a survivor she, too. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so she shared with me some stuff that really blew my mind, and I was like, okay, so this is a thing that happens. You know, it's not just me. I'm not a complete freak. And um. She was. She gave me some flyers for this drop-in center for teenagers. So I went along, and I was so scared. I gave them a fake name, um, in case that I gave them information, and they were going to run to the police and report my uncle, and then I would create this big drama in the family. So, um, before we get to that, what did it feel like in that moment when she shared with you that she was a survivor? Again, like, it it was just like your brain explodes, like, you know, and we're sitting in this Indian restaurant in, in Wolverhampton and everyone's having a drunken night and here we are. And, you know, I was like, I remember kind of being like shaken and really scared because I felt like I was saying I'm gay or something. I felt like, you know, I don't want to be telling you this, but I need to tell someone and it just kind of, I just vomited it on the table practically. And the weird thing was I expected a big reaction and there was none. <laughs> she was just like, okay, <laughs> you know, um, 
and so like when I started the counselling and I believe that she I credit her with saving with saving my life because at that point I was seventeen I was um I was starting to experiment with drugs. I was living with these students who were growing marijuana on the top floor and uh, they, were, they were giving me acid and stuff and I was just lost and scared and running. And um, I, 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 it was a, it was a kind of crazy time. My feet didn't really touch the ground for like a year, you know. I, I volunteered. I started working for bands, so I worked for like Black Sabbath and all these bands, and I was just a crew guy. No way! It was awesome. I mean, to be that young and surrounded by these big hairy tattooed guys and shit. And was uh, Ozzy with them at that point? Or yeah, yeah. So a lot of drugs. I mean, and stuff. And I was just young, and I had no idea what I was doing. So, um, but. You know, so I'd planned my suicide um, because I was—I wanted to be an actor. That was my ultimate goal, and I'd once done this little short film, and they, we got to try on some uh, chainmail, you know, period. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you've ever worn that. It's no, it looks incredibly heavy. Yeah, I mean, it'd be—I don't know, like ten or fifteen pounds. It's metal. It's like a metal jacket, and um, and the thing is, if you learn to swim, you the, you learn in your pajamas because your clothes become really heavy. So my plan was to get some chainmail and just fall off a pier, and there's no way you get up. You'll never get out of there. It's pretty romantic. <laughs> that was my. That was going to be my way because I was just too scared to jump out a building, or you know. Would you? It, were you planning when you jumped off of there in your chainmail to say, "I bid thee adieu"? No, I was going to scream freedom. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, that was, that was my plan, and I, I never told anyone that. But Ra- I, when when I met Rachel and I started the counselling, then that that option just evaporated, and I'm I'm not going to kill myself. And so to this day, like you know, I I quit. Like when I finished the ten thousand mile walk, she was waiting there at Edinburgh Castle for my last steps, and she and I walked together the last few meters, you know, until I was finally done. What'd that feel like? Oh man, I was just delirious. Like I'd, I'd walked forty-five miles that day from Glasgow to Edinburgh, and um, I was like eighteen hours walking, and the whole way was like people were there giving me hugs and selfies, and and then that was the, officially the end of the walk. I got to Edinburgh Castle, and a couple the, a couple of days later, we did the ceremonial last mile when a thousand people flew in from all over the world, from all these countries, and we walked just from the Edinburgh Castle to the Scottish Parliament, and that was that was that was only like six or seven weeks ago. So, yeah, so we're jumping around, but um, the thing with Cara was, um, you know, we, we were together and um, I got I got to age 20. So I lived in England for all those, for from 17 till 20, and I moved up and I, I got into drama school, a really good one in Scotland. Uh, we have two, so, <laughs> so, like, it's the place where, you know, Kevin McKidd, Scottish actor, he was in Trainspotting, and mm-hmm. so he went there, and Ashley Jensen, who's in Ugly Betty, she went there. Um, so I got into this drama school. And again, I still had this fear of gay people, you know, I still, and, and if you're walking into a drama school, pretty much, you know. Good luck to you. Yeah. I mean, one of my lecturers in the first day um, uh, is, and we're good friends now, but Joe um, Clifford, who is transgender, and, and here I was presented with, you know, and I was just like a wee guy from Glasgow, not not computing, like this doesn't make sense in my head, but, you know, a world where that's all cool, you know. So for the whole of first year, I was with Cara, and um, everything was fine. But at the end of first year, um, a guy who was in my class, and he was he was from Belfast. He was in a, an Irish Catholic family. His parents were quite strict, and they'd bought him an apartment. Um, and But he was so effeminate. Like, you know, he screamed gay without saying it. And the whole of first year, it was really... 
it was awkward, you know, bless him, like, he couldn't come out. He was terrified they would lose his family. And and, so, and it was cringy, like, he would talk about girls and stuff, and, you know, it was like, mate, just chill. Um, but at the end of first year, Karen and I went on holiday to Greece, as you do when you're a straight couple. And we got back, and there was my friend Paul. Greece seems like an odd place to, to go to reaffirm your your uh, heterosexuality. <laughs> no, like, and for British people, you just go down there, Mediterranean, okay. all those islands, cheap package okay. holidays. That's what you do. Go and get drunk. We wanted to affirm our heterosexuality. We went to Fire Island. <laughs> I went to Lesbos, yeah. yeah. But, um, so I went there. Uh, I got back and Paul was there and he was distraught. And he told me that he'd kissed a guy. He got drunk and kissed a guy. And I was like, not shocked. I was like, bless you. You know, and I was, you know, I was studying acting and I couldn't even act surprised. You know, it's just like, <laughs> man, that's, you know, wow. Ooh, really? You know, um, but the thing what happened was, as I was talking to him, um, he, I was like, Paul, how do you get to age? How do you get to age 20 and not know you're gay? You know, I mean, like, mm-hmm. well, how have you been covering up all this time? And he goes, well, you know, um, there's, there was a guy in our class, and I doubt he'll ever listen to this. He's an actor in the UK. But he, he's, he is, well, he's a massive cock, this guy. He has a massive cock. And um, we'd be, every morning you'd limber, like you'd do stretching and stuff for half an hour. And there we'd always be in his tight kind of trousers, you know. Mm-hmm. And Paul was like, you know, in the morning, like, and, and there, there he is. And, you know, he says, like, I just can't look at him. So he said, I would just chase those thoughts out of my mind. And the weird thing was, as I was talking to him, I actually recognized what he was saying. And I was like, oh, I do that. And uh, so I was here, I was, I was 20 years old, and I'd spent, you know, pretty much my entire adult life believing that my, my uncle had fucked up my brain. But talking to Paul, I realized, oh, fuck, I'm gay. And it was like, you know, it would literally, the walls fell away. You know, it was just, it was just like standing there, and like, I was just dizzy and like, fuck. Because, um, like I hated gay people, you know, and then suddenly to because I believed they were all sex offenders, they were all perverts, and in this weird moment I realised, fuck, I am one, and what do I do? You know, who the fuck am I now? So then I had to go and tell Kara, and that was weird because I'm normally really chilled and really happy, quite funny, um, and so I, I go to her place and uh, and she knows something's wrong, and I'm you know silent. I was silent for like three days and she was going out of her mind going, you, you know, something's wrong, you got to talk to me. And uh, eventually I just said, I'm struggling. She was like, yeah, I can see you're struggling. What are you struggling with? And I said, I'm struggling like Paul's struggling. And that was all I said. And she was, I mean, obviously she was like, what? I mean, what the fuck? Uh, and so, and we were, I don't know if you remember Dawson's Creek, but she and I were like Joey and Pacey. We were like, you know, this the couple, you know, and everyone in my class my drama school you know ever, we went everywhere together and um and so i was uh, you know i didn't know who i was i didn't know what to do i didn't know what this meant you know and I, all i knew she and i were talking about getting engaged because we'd been together forever um and i wanted to have kids and i wanted to be with her and she's she was like my best friend um and we'd learned everything together but i kind of said to her like i have to go and i can't come back um so I went back to Edinburgh, and um, where I was studying, and uh, and we started second year, and um, everyone was like, "Where's Kara?" You know, we were having parties and stuff because it's a new year. Uh, and I went, I went to all the parties, and everyone was like, "Where is she?" And I was just like, "I don't really want to talk about it." So, and we went to this one party, and you know, student parties, there's always people there you don't know. And I guess there was this one guy there, and he was just gay. 
and I ended up opening up to him of all people and I'm standing in the kitchen talking to him and I said you know I don't know who he was he was like he was like the boyfriend of some guy that he was in one of the other courses at my at my uni I think he was from Malaysia and um because I'm kind of normally really life of the party but I was really quiet and kind of distant so I was just talking to him and I told him the whole story um, it was one of those weird, vague situations where the the party got quieter and quieter and everyone kind of left and then I don't know what happened and then I woke up at 5am and he drugged me and I was like, fuck. So, I mean, this was my biggest fear. Was like I didn't want to be gay because I believed all gay people are perverts and they're fucking dangerous. And suddenly, like, the first gay guy I meet drugs me and, um, he, you know, I, the weird thing was I was awake but I couldn't move. I couldn't stop what he was doing. And I didn't know if that was the drugs or if I was just paralysed. You know, looking back, I don't know. I just lay there. Um, and it's kind of foggy what really happened. But I got up. Eventually, he was gone and I got up. And it was like the daylight was coming. And I was on the floor in his living room. I couldn't find my shoes. And I'm going about his house. And then I saw him. And, um, and I just started swearing at him. And I'm screaming, calling him a cunt. And I... Uh, and his boyfriend woke up and was like, what the fuck happened? And um, and I, I just leave their house and I'm walking home through Edinburgh. In Edinburgh, I don't know if you know, it's quite a cool city to walk around. There's no metro, there's no underground, you can walk everywhere. And the police drove past me and I thought, I'll just stand in front of the police car and they'll hit me and that'll be over. I didn't do that though. I, I walked home, I punched a couple of phone phone boxes. I was like, I need to damage something. I, I was trying to fuck up a, a bus stop or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I got home and um, my flatmate then, it was called Phil, and um, he was there and I just walked in in a complete state and I, and I was like, I've just been raped. And so he phoned the police and they came and the police came in and I was really scared because I, I knew I was stalking on drugs. And the first thing I said to the police was like, I'm on drugs, I took drugs, I didn't know what I took, it wasn't my fault. And they were like, okay. So they took me to the police station. I gave a full-ass statement, it took like three hours and then they took me to the hospital and I was in the hospital for a couple of days. And, you know, so there was all these, there was like four people in the room. Um, and the thing is like, I'm, when I gave a presentation at the Scottish Parliament there just last month, the, the, the kind of head of the Scottish police was there. And I, they've asked me to come and advise them on how the police deal with survivors and, and victims. Um, and I'll talk to them about how I was dealt with that day because like, there was two police officers and two forensic um, doctors in the room and me and like you know like they put a fucking camera crew up your ass and all this kind of stuff. I was covered in biological evidence. Like The guy came all over me. And... Um, and then I, I kind of, I, I had this kind of antibacterial shower I had to go and do. And then eventually, like, the sergeant drove me home. And uh, he was really uncomfortable. He was clearly homophobic. And he dropped me off. And I said, so are you going to go and arrest this guy? Like, I, And the weird thing was he fucking texted me. He texted me and apologized for, for what happened, right? So I have the evidence on my phone and I gave it, showed it to the police. And they were like, well, we'll need to take your phone. So they took my phone off me, my mobile. And, um, and I was like, are you going to arrest him? And he, his exact words were, well, it's not exactly urgent, is it? And I was like, what the fuck? What? You? I know. So I was like, and I figured like if I'd have been younger, if I was a kid and I'd been raped or if I was a woman, and I'd been raped I think they would have moved on it but he was really homophobic and uncomfortable and um, it took six weeks for me to get my phone back I kept going back up to the police station and saying can I, you know, can I have my phone yet and they had all my clothes that I'd been wearing that day with all the, the biological evidence on it and 
And eventually, like, the guy, they questioned him. I guess they took a hair sample or something. So the victim has to have this really intrusive and, and humiliating uh, forensic exam, and the offender just gets a, some hair for DNA, you know. Um, and then by the time any action was taken, I'm aware that he left the country. So he fucked off back to Malaysia or wherever he was from, and nothing happened. And I never got a call or... I never heard again what you know what's what's happening, and um, but the whole thing was so fucked up. Like I wanted to drop out of drama school. I didn't want to speak to anyone, and and so here I was. Like within the same two weeks, I discovered I was gay, lost my girlfriend, being raped, and then you know this again confirmed all my beliefs and fears about gay people. But ultimately, I still am a gay person. So what do I do? So that was a crazy year. I went to the the head of my school. That's the that's the trauma trifecta. I know, right? <laughs> you, should, you should have thrown in, moved, and had a loved one die, and you could have set a record. It's just awfulsome, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I feel bad because I know my brother's going to listen to this, and they didn't know. I've never told anyone about that, but it's okay. I, I have no shame. So you never told anybody. Uh, that was close to you about about that <laughs> because about the rape. I was so scared I was going to lose my family just for being gay, you know. And I, I mean, it was just like it was all your fears are confirmed. I had to go and get an AIDS test and an HIV and all these things. And it's like you know, it was a world that I was terrified of because at that time in the, you know, we used to have all those commercials with the with the stones dropping and like telling you there's this gay plague that's going to get you. And then this guy, um, you know, just got me. So, but thank God it was all fine. And um, so. Yeah, so it took it, it, from that point on, you know, like my my flatmate called Phil. He and I, I mean, he's like he was. He ended up being my first boyfriend, and he let me be a freak as well because I was just like, don't fucking touch me, and like you know. And again, when we started doing stuff, and it was even more difficult because the stuff we wanted to do to each other was felt like and and, and looked like what my uncle used to do. So trying to work out what is you know what why am I wanting to do this and. Him being really cool with me, just letting me be a freak, and you know, it took a couple of years, and um, and then we eventually kind of we broke up just because he was my first boyfriend and stuff, and but um, I'm still we're still really close, and he lives in London, and now that I'm finished the walk, I'm I'm actually homeless right now, so he's got a room that I could maybe move into. I would imagine there's more than a few people willing to let you crash <laughs> on their couch. Yeah, well, I've been staying in Texas the past couple of weeks with a good friend, so and um, yeah, it's. It's crazy. You decided you were tired of you're tired of homophobia, so you're going to go chill out in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> but, exactly. I was in a bar in Texas the other day, and uh, and you know I'm walking around in the kilt, and I went into to the urinals, and there's there's one stall, so I thought, well, I'll go into the stall, and this big ass guy appeared at my shoulder, and he was just trying to see my cock, and I was trying to piss, and he just I got a fright because he was right on my shoulder. Yeah. And I, and I just went, Jesus Christ! And and he goes, What you got there? And I was and I was like, I, I was startled, so I just left. And and um and he called me a pussy. And I turned around, and I was thinking, in the size of him, and I was thinking, if you couldn't kick my ass, I would fucking kick your ass right now. <laughs> so he was huge. So it's like that's not going to happen. But um, yeah. So I'm trying to think, how did we get there to the walk? So yeah. So it was a kind of for me quite a journey, and that's why I'm so fucking deeply offended by Russia right now, and the fact that they actively promote and they, they produce this paraphernalia and all this bollocks about um, gay people being a danger to kids um, and, and they actively create cartoons of propaganda bullshit and, and spread that because and I, for me I had to go on that journey and really understand and separate my mind that my uncle wasn't a gay person he was a child sex offender 
um, and, and you know, and for me, and so now, I mean, I'm I'm a kind of known gay playwright in the UK. I did a fest, a gay rights festival a couple of years ago. I wrote a play about um, it was called The Child Made of Love. It was about gay adoption. Um, I wrote a. I did a 10-minute play festival about marriage equality and I got plays from New York and from, uh, I think, from Indonesia and from the Congo. All these writers from all over the world writing 10-minute plays about marriage equality and we, we performed that in the UK. So I'm totally like you writes now, but it's been quite a journey for me. So, Wow, so much. So much. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the walk yet. <laughs> so. Well, let's get, let's get into the walk. Um, well, it was called Road to Change. It was a 10,000 mile walk to every European Union capital to, to raise awareness and prevent child sexual abuse. So the reason it all happened was um, it began, I think, 2007. So I'm an actor now. Like I graduated, I got a job with the BBC. I did like 150 episodes of this kid's show. And it's still on every day. Like What's it called? It's called Me Too. Mm-hmm. And um, it's on every day. And like I think it's on in Australia. My cousins watch it over there. Most English-speaking countries it's on. And I forgot about it. You know, we did we did all these episodes and then I moved on to, like, soap opera and cop shows and shit. So I forget when I meet a child and they think, oh, it's Raymond. And I'm like, oh, yeah, crap. Hi. <laughs> so I have to <laughs> jump into this kind of character. But um, So I did that and then I, I kind of... I, I kind of found myself writing theatre because I was frustrated. Scotland's a really small country. The industry's pretty small. You know, a bit like Ireland. You watch Irish TV and it's the same actors and everything. We're a bit like that. And... Um, I was getting frustrated. I wasn't getting cast in the stuff I wanted to be in just because there's not enough jobs, really. And just out of that frustration, I started writing my own shows. And, um, I mean, I, I never claimed to be a good playwright, but I was fortunate. I was getting some really good opportunities. Um, so, summer 2007, I was over in Dublin working with this Commedia dell'arte company. And I think they're from Chicago originally, but they're awesome. And um, I was just training with them for a while, learning Commedia. And my brother's wife calls me. This is a different brother. He lives in Ireland. And she said, you know, your brother's just not very well at the moment. And I was like, okay, here we go. So, because I knew that he, like, you know, we all had never really spoken about it together, what my uncle had done. So I I finished the job in Dublin and I, I take the bus up to Donegal. And there's my brother and he's, you know, stressed and he's falling apart. And his so wife, is this the one that's 10 years older or a different one? A different one, yeah. yeah. So the oldest one, he'd kind of become medicated for depression. He keeps antipsychotic medicine in the house still to this day. And um, so I go up to see this other brother and, um, you know, there he is. And he's pretty much mute, like he's, he's losing the ability to speak about anything. And he and I have never talked about what the problem is. So, But the problem is we're both Scottish men, you know, in Ireland of all places. And, we, you know, so we go to the pub, we drink a lot of whiskey. And then we walk back to his house in pitch black. He lives in up a little country lane. And uh, at 4 a.m., we're outside his house under the stars. You know, it's like a movie. And <laughs> and I, because I've been through it and I've talked through it, talked it out, you know, I kind of lead the conversation. And at that night, for the first time, he and I had a conversation about it. And then I came back to Scotland after that, and I was just like... What, was, what was the conversation like? <clears throat> he was... He talked about how he was angry at my mum and dad because... Not that they knew about it, but, you know, and that that was the first thing that came up for me when I was 17 going through therapy, like this rage that I had, like, you know, why didn't you protect me? And, it, you know, logically they didn't know what was happening, but that doesn't really matter if you're a child. Their job is to look out for you and not let these things happen. And because we were Catholic, like twice a year, we would sit every night and say the rosary, you know, with the beads. And I would always question, I'm like, why are we saying this? And my mom would say, it's to protect you. 
and I knew, like, I'm not being protected, so this is bullshit. All this stuff is just theatre, you know. And I got really resentful of, of kind of Easter and Christmas and all those things as a kid. I felt like an imposter in my own family because I knew that they all believed in this bearded man in the sky who's looking out for you. And I was like, it's not happening. You know, you're not able to do anything with these words. And so I hate my uncle for for taking me out of that stuff and I, he you know he f- made me feel like an imposter in my own family and my own school you know and every time we were forced to go to mass i was just like this is all bullshit and you're all fucking sucked into this stuff um you know so <laughs> um sorry but um so there's my brother and i and we have this kind of deep, deep conversation about what he's struggling with and uh, it was a very general conversation about the beginning of his healing i guess and um and i went back to scotland and i was fucking raging again Particularly because at that time, my uncle, who did this to all of us, was still a school teacher. Oh. And he was also, I think he was like a soccer coach. He ran football teams with young team boys. And I was like, this is so fucked up. Like, why are we not allowed to talk about it in case we make anyone uncomfortable? And we're expected to stay silent and let this guy just continue what he was doing. But the problem is, again, it's so difficult to talk about it. So I, being me, and I was starting to write theatre, I wrote this play called To Kill a Kelpie. A kelpie is like a, a water creature in Scotland, like a like the Loch Ness monster is a famous kelpie, but there's loads of different legends. Um, and the original legend is like the kelpie would appear at the side of the water as a kind of charming guy, and if you got close, he would grab you and drag you into the water. And um, I remember I'd, at that time I'd watched the documentary about phobia, and they they say a phobia is like you take something like people aren't actually scared of rats or snakes, they're scared of something that they can't remember, and their brain has replaced that fear with this thing it's like an icon or so when you see that thing it brings back that fear but you know you have to examine what's behind that so um i thought about that i was like what am i scared of and i'm scared of sea creatures i'm scared of going into water um and when i really thought why am i scared of that if you can imagine lying on my uncle's bed he would always undress me from the waist down and so if you're standing in water like in a lake or something or loch as we call them you you kind of that, that below the waist you can't see into the water and something can come at you or grab you and do anything with you from and you have no power and you don't know where it's coming from. Oh, that makes sense. So that's what my phobia was, and that was a perfect metaphor for a child sex offender. So I wrote this this play originally, and in the play there's two brothers called Dougal and Fingal, which is old Gaelic names. Dougal means black stranger and Fingal means white stranger. And the first line of the play is "Hey stranger," and I'm kind of tapping into the idea that. Your best friend or your my mom my mom's brother was a complete stranger to her. She didn't really know who he was, although she thought she did. Um, and in the play, they're twins, so because they've had the same trauma, the same experience. But in the play, one of them's been to therapy and the other one hasn't, and it's a kind of exploration of the different places you end up in your mind. And that's really all that happens in the play. They come together for the first time and talk about what their uncle did. And so I'm, I tell my brothers, you know, I've written this play. I got a producer in Glasgow to do it. I got professional actors. I got funding. And it was like the real professional show. And this was before the kind of big Catholic church scandal and, you know, before all the BBC scandals that are going on right now. So it was really intense when it was performed. Um, The BBC came along because I was starting to get known as a writer. So the BBC were just there to see it as a piece of art, you know. Um, But my brothers were there because they knew what I'd written about. And so I kind of thought, we we have an organisation in Scotland called the Moira Anderson Foundation, and they, they, they're a service provider for adults and child survivors and they give legal advice and counselling and therapeutic uh, psychiatric work and stuff. And I invited them to be present at the show and give a post-show talk and have their flyers everywhere. So if anyone in the audience was triggered, they could just take quietly take that information with them. 
and it, it kind of worked like you know it, my brothers came together in that in that in that year we we spoke for the first time and i i just felt that you know our silence is so dangerous because our uncle there he is and we're kind of just letting them continue you know and i'm adamant it wasn't about revenge it wasn't about compensation it was about child protection we need to we need to break the silence right now so and the play was the catalyst i guess and within a year he was prosecuted and he's put in prison so the cool thing was the play which is just a story um based on you know inspired by true events but then i went to the scottish government and i got funding to take it to new york we did it, did it off broadway 2012 and then we toured it um, or in the States and we would also repeat the same model we would invite local service providers so to be on the stage in a panel afterwards we talked to the audience and in every city literally every time we did it we had people disclosing for the first time there was a guy in San Francisco he was like 70 and his brother was 68 and he said they'd never never spoken about it but after the play he was like I'm going to go home and I'm going to call my brother and um and so we had that you know everywhere but it, it cost like 50 grand to tour the play but it cost nothing to tour the film so we went back to Scotland and we made the movie my brothers all four of us worked on it and we made the movie <laughs> what was that like having all four of you pitch in on something oh, like that well it was it was intense because the, the other actor who played my brother I ended up casting myself in the play you know if you get a play going to Broadway and fuck it you put yourself in it but, hell yeah um, so the other actor and I he, he learned a lot about the subject from from working on the show with me um, and the week that we did it, my brother, who was the old, who did the film director who had the first breakdown, he he was directing it, um, and it really got under his skin, and he kind of he had a kind of breakdown the week of filming. So, I mean, it was insane. If you imagine the kelpie is a water creature, and we're filming up in the Scottish Highlands next to Loch Ness, and he's <laughs> he starts having he starts falling apart and slipping into psychosis, and I had to f- drive him from the film set to hospital. I had to drive him up the side of the Loch Ness to get to Inverness Hospital, and um, and he's psychotic and and you know talking about the kelpie. <laughs> it's just insane. And like I hadn't smoked in forever, and I I stopped at the garage and I bought cigarettes and I'm like driving and smoking. And he's talking about you know, he was talking. He becomes kind of thinks he's um, Christ. Bless him. I love my brother, and I'm so sad that he has to deal with this pish, but. You know, like we we can look back and kind of laugh at the craziness of it, I guess, because we have to, you know, have to cope with it. But I got him to the hospital, and he was doing that thing of of acting completely normal. Like, you know, why you what the hell you bring me here for? Is this the brother who's ten years older? Yeah, yeah. And so I took him into the hospital, and the the nurse was just like, "He seems fine. Why have you brought him all this way?" And I was just like, "I was." So I just said to him, um, I can't remember how I provoked him, but I just. I started talking about being gay, and he started healing me of being gay because he's Christ. And I was like, right, okay, there you are. Did you see? Wow. <laughs> I was like, so. And the doctor was like, okay, he can stay. And I was like, so I left him in the hospital, and I went back and finished the movie. And the same day, I'd been, I had like two hours sleep. I was like, fuck. So the last scene of the movie, when, and I won't give you the whole story away, but you know, the last scene of the movie, my brother loses his mind and ends up going psychotic because I'd dealt with it so many times. And I'd dealt with it that morning. I'd taken him into hospital. And that was literally the last, I had to go drive from the hospital. It took me three hours to get round to the locker we were filming at Lochmora. And uh, so there's no acting involved in that film. Like I literally <laughs> had just lived it. It was fucking insane. But um, so anyway, yeah. So we did the play and the film, and the film's now touring. I think universities in the states, and there's a post show kind of talk and stuff. It's just a catalyst for discussion. Um, and now I think my plan originally was like if I showed it in every city in Europe, you know, that would really get people talking. 
And I was like, how, do, how would I get funding to fly to every city in Europe? And I was like, well, if I walk, if I walk, then I would attract more media attention. And that was the original idea. And I, I was lying in the bath in London, like 2011, and I had this idea, I'll just walk to every city. It took two years of planning and preparation. And then May 31st, I left London and walked to Paris and then Luxembourg. And, and I, it kind of worked. Like I, I started, I was just a guy from Kids TV. But by the time I'd finished, I'd been on TV, radio and newspapers in 30 languages. In so many countries, I was like the first male survivor to speak. And the journalists were like, we've never met a man before who talks about him being abused or anything. So that was like historically significant in those countries. It doesn't matter that it was me. It matters that any man stood up and broke the silence. What did it feel like, though, to be the first in some of these countries when somebody would say you're the first one to have spoken publicly about this? Sometimes, I mean, it was difficult because, you know, when you're talking to someone about this stuff and you realize that you're talking to a survivor and I realized that they're back from they're back like, you know, in Estonia feels like Scotland in the 90s. And, and I can see the panic behind their eyes as I'm openly talking about these st- stats and, and kind of situations. And there was one journalist in one country, bless her, and she was she was like totally, you know, gorgeous and perfect. Her hair was perfect and stuff. And I, I was talking to her and we're walking and they're filming us. And she's just a kind of news reporter. And I could see that she was really freaking out just as I was saying these things. And I was like, you know, looking around. And that happened a lot in different countries. They don't have organizations like Moira Anderson Foundation. You know, I'm encouraging people to come out, but what if they do? What are they going to do? A great, great one here in the States is RAIN.org, yeah. Rape and Incest National Network, R-A-I-N-N.org. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing, like walking and listening to your show. I would, like, listen to... You would give a book recommendation, and then that, that night I would write it down and would look for it. If we were in a hotel with Wi-Fi, I would try and buy it, or if there was an audio version, and then the next day I would listen to that book and then go back to your show. So <laughs> I, I listened to... I mean, the Guy Winch episodes were amazing. There was... Um, and th- that book, I remember, what was it? No More Mr. Nice Guy. You recommended that. That's a good one. But I was like, what? You know, that was about tr- always trying to please people. And I listened to that book, and here I am walking around Europe, you know, getting chased by wild dogs, trying to... <laughs> rescue 820 million people you know i was like and suddenly i listened to that book and it explained my whole psyche i was like oh crap you know i was like i'm just gonna get a plane home did it bring you some relief though to know that you could let go and not try to take care of everybody Uh, yeah i mean yeah again like the whole your show was such a it was i mean it's weird because you you talk directly into the mic so when you're walking um especially when you read out the surveys and you're just talking one-on-one it feels like for everyone i'm sure who listens to this it feels like you're talking to them and in the journey I was on, it was it was great to just hear people talking about this shit just so openly. And um, it became, I, I started, I did a podcast for the, the Walk, and I started punting your podcast, telling it, all the survivors who listening to my show listen to this show. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, where were we? Where were we uh, you were walk. you were walking. What was it like yeah. to be the first person? So this oh, yeah. this journalist, you could see in her eyes that there was some somewhere she didn't want to go. Well, I mean, I felt kind of conflicted because I want everyone to, to who's been abused for reasons of child protection. If you if the person who abused you is still in contact with kids, like we really need you to come forward. But saying that in the UK is fine. But saying that in Romania, where the police force aren't really supportive. Um, and there isn't these kind of NGOs who are going to give you the, you know, the, the support emotionally. And I mean, I started to get waves of emails from people. And like, I remember I was walking through, I think it was Latvia. And I'd, a couple of weeks before I was in Finland and I'd spoken in national media. Someone wrote to me and the, the, the email was like a picture of a kid. And it was a little boy on a sports day. And the email said, this is my son. My husband keeps molesting him. What do I do? 
And I was like, fuck. So wow. I just went and I, I think I walked off the road to the nearest store. I got a pack of smokes and I sat and smoked like 20 cigarettes going like, what do we do? You know? But when I was in Helsinki, I, I'd, I'd met the, the, the organizations that, that serve Finland and I was able to just kind of redirect it. And that, that actually started happening quite frequently. So there's various. What did you do in, in the Latvia situation though? Again, passed it on to the authorities and the, oh, okay. and the NGOs who are that, that women's immediate support network. Um, because I would walk like the British ambassadors in every country started walking with me, and um, what'd that feel like? Oh, I was insane. Like, cause the whole time I was walking up until September, Scotland was building up to this independence referendum, and I walk in a kilt with the, the Scotland flag on my chest. You know, I, I might as well say freedom tattooed on my fucking forehead. You know, <laughs> and uh, the British ambassador represents the Queen and also the British government. And it, I mean, we couldn't have met. I wouldn't have met as many government officials nor as many press as I did without the British embassy's help. But it was politically awkward because I'm so pro-independence. But to be pro-independence wasn't to be anti-English. It was just, you know, it was, it was, um, it was more important than that. <laughs> One of the British ambassadors, I think... I would can't, can't the two of you come together over awful food, though? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, haggis. You guys give it a bad rep. Have you tried haggis? I have. Mm. And I rest my case. Oh, seriously, well, come on, you guys. Maybe like, I didn't have it done the right way. No, if you get if you go to the cinema and eat a hot dog, you're eating worse than haggis because that's full of like lips and assholes and shit. You know, at least haggis you can see where it is. You know, there's still lumps in there. But there are lips and assholes from beautiful pigs. All right, okay. You don't like sheep? They're, they're all lookers. Oh well, <laughs> I do not like the taste of sheep. It's too strong, man. Is most haggis made from sheep? Yeah, it's lamb. It has to be. Okay. I mean, well, unless you get vegetarian haggis, but that's just for, yeah, yeah, yeah bless them. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the British ambassador, one of them said to me, um, he goes, so where do you stand on the independence? And I was like, wow, that's a that's a difficult question. And I just said, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm currently out of the country, so my vote won't be counted. And he said, well, if that's another vote for independence off the table, then I'm happy. I was like, wow, that was cheeky. So I just said, well, you never know, Ambassador. I could be back next year in the office beside yours as the Scottish Ambassador. <laughs> but anyway, it didn't, it didn't go my way. Uh, you know, Scotland voted no. And um, the week that I was, I was invited to speak at the United Nations when I walked through Switzerland. So the week of the referendum, I was in the UN and I'm walking around in my kilt with the salt tire on my chest. And people from like Hawaii or Catalonia or Montreal, any delegate from anywhere in the world where there's an independence discussion were like running at me and asking me what's going on. And I didn't mean to become, the, you know, an advertent Scottish ambassador. So that was kind of intense because the British delegation in the UN were hosting me that week. But Were the Swiss neutral on childhood sexual abuse? <laughs> well, I walked around the EU and when I went into Switzerland, that's non-EU. That was the only time I left the European Union. So I was purely there to be at the UN for a week and then I went back to walk to Madrid. But, um, I mean, it blew my mind, like, when I started walking, everyone was just like, you know, my friend said to me, he was like, just think, you know, before I left, he was like, this time next month, you'll be lying dead in the field with gypsies robbing your corpse. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and like, there was this, like, you know, my family were thinking of having me committed. They were like, what the fuck are you going to, what are you talking about? You're going to walk around Europe and change these laws. And I was like, well, I'm sure it'll be cool. You know, believe me. I went to 200 companies and asked for support, but I got nothing. Um, but I was like, this is going to work. So I just started walking and people kind of eventually saw what I was doing. And if you donated £10 to the Road to Change, that £10 would pay for either food or socks or, you know, like a, a diesel for the follow van. So practically I walked 30 miles every day. The van would drive 30 miles um, 
and I would just do that until I got to the next city. The British Embassy is really helpful, helping me get to the governments, and I spoke to pretty much the governments across the EU. I managed to get the, the focus of it was to ask them to abolish the statute of limitations, and you have that in the states. It's a fucking disastrous law, mm-hmm. and it's it, it creates a child protection problem. So, in in simple terms, like when I was in Hungary, for example, I was asked to speak at the International Day of Victims, and I'm on the stage with the Secretary of State and and all those people, and I just said, if my uncle abused me in this country, you would not have arrested him. He would still be free. A repeat child sex offender would be free and in contact with your children because of your legislation. And they said, no, that's not true. And I was like, unfortunately, it is true because the head of the police had given me the Hungarian law. Nine months after that conference, they abolished the law. What does that feel like, knowing that... Well, I didn't... I mean, they didn't call me up and say, thank you for, you know, pointing that out, but... um, Your own self-knowledge that you helped nudge that. That conversation. Yeah, I mean, because Hungary is a country of 10 million people, you know, and from now on there'll be no restriction on those those kids coming forward, you know, because it does... That was what I spoke about at the UN was what I'd observed, and the silence is different. You know, in every country, like no country in Europe, no country in the world are comfortable talking about sex with children. But what I started to find is that when I spoke to survivors in different places, they were like, well, there was a woman in Sweden said that women here were supposed to be contained and polite. And I mean, the whole Scandinavia is pretty middle class. Women can't show anger. But, you know, anger is one of the most common like residual outcomes of sexual trauma. If you're, if you're in an environment where you can't process that, that you know, you end, the result is silence and that's generational. But if you go to Italy, the, the women don't have that problem. They can be fucking screaming in the street, you know, so they can really show emotion. But in Italy, the men can't be vulnerable, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, half of the EU used to be Soviet territory. And so there's not so much a, um, a a cultural thing. It's almost a historical political situation they have. The older generation, they explain to me, there's this kind of sensibility of secrecy. You automatically don't involve the authorities in anything that they consider a family business. And that's not left yet you know because it was only 20 years ago that the, that curtain was lifted yeah because to go outside when the soviet union was around to go outside your family was to attract attention yeah and that could and so all these different qualities of the people the reasons people stay silent and actually like if you imagine in the european union there's three countries that they're less than the population of la you know like so i mean like luxembourg is only half a million people the whole country and uh, the malta is like three hundred and sixty thousand people and in a country that small, you cannot have a sex offender's register because if you identify the offender, you automatically identify the victim. And so they won't do it that way. Um, and in and, and Cyprus, there's another really tiny country, they explained that the the oldest person in the family is like sovereign, you know, and their word is infallible. So a child cannot speak or say anything negative about their elder. What? So all these different cultural qualities and religious, I mean, whatever religious was prominent, you know, religious situation like in Poland I spoke in the newspaper and nothing in the article said I was gay but I'm walking in a kilt and it's a blue kilt so it just looks like a skirt if you don't know what it is and uh, the the article was about me having sex with my uncle and the, or the online article just got all this homophobia thrown at it and I was just like that's exactly the problem you know if any any country that promotes homophobia where there's a fear of LGBT that incubates the silence of the boys abused by men and the girls abused by women because they're terrified to be associated with anything gay and I think I was talking to a newspaper in Romania and I said, you know, homophobia uh, breeds pedophilia. And they went, yes, we know. And I said, you didn't hear what I said. <laughs> I was like, you think I said hom- homosexuality breeds pedophilia. It's the opposite is true. Any country where there's LGBT um, progress is kind of stymied. That's the kind of place where they're abusing the kids and, and the kids don't get to come forward because of that fear of being associated with it. So 
I'm so proud to be Scottish. Like I'm so when I got home, my first minister was there, and I got to speak at the Scottish Parliament. And in the middle of my presentation, it was the same presentation I gave at the UN, but kind of shorter. In the middle of the presentation, I kind of lost my thread, and I just said, "Can I just thank my first minister for bringing marriage equality to Scotland on behalf of my future husband and I?" And everyone clapped. And then I said, "I'm currently single, but you know, <laughs> when I put my mind to something." But, um, yeah, so it's, Scotland has been through a huge change, you know, and it, it's great when you see kids coming out in high school now and all that kind of stuff. I'm really pleased for it's them. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I get so many emails from kids that are stuck in, you know, they're 14 and they, the environment and their family is toxic and homophobic and they're afraid uh, to come out. And I never know what to say other than hang on for four more years and then get the fuck out of there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the United States is for me, like, I love the US. I really do. Like, I've got, I love NY on my, tattooed on my arm, but um, I worry for, you know, the religious territories of this country and the kids there, you know. And I mean, in a way, Ireland is making a lot of progress. The, the health minister in Ireland just came out and he's like in his 70s. So that's been a, through a transformation. But I remember even 10 years ago, like, all these teenagers hanging themselves in the wardrobe and stuff. And it's just like, oh, you know. If you could just hang on. And uh, people in the trans community have it even worse that it's the ignorance around it. And I actually include uh, myself uh, when I started this podcast in that, you know, I didn't even realize that the term shemale was derogatory. I told because I listened to chronologically to all your episodes and I loved witnessing your progression because you were like totally open about it. Like, I don't know the terminology here, you know, and I I loved actually watching you grow as a presenter and how open you are and how you you were like, you know, open Mm -hmm. to criticism and stuff. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. So I want to ask you, how has... Doing the walk, how's that? How's that changed you? How? Uh, well, I mean, I got back and they slapped me with a doctorate, so I'm now a doctor. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that was coming. When I walked into my town, Glasgow, I was invited into my old school and they gave me a doctorate, and um, and I was so shocked. Like, I, I was also given the Top Scott Award, which is this kind of annual thing. It's given to like J.K. Rowling has it and Susan Boyle rock and roll. So I'm now Dude, up there with that's Susan. That's awesome. <laughs> well, it means like I don't know. I'm kind of confused about what I am now because my career's changed. You know, um, I don't. I'm getting invited to. to I'm, I'm invited back to Strasbourg in June to advise the Council of Europe on this legislative change. The one that I helped encourage in eight countries. We're going to try and do it across all 47. But I still want to be an actor. Like I want to do TV and theatre, and there's all these projects I want to work on. So my life has changed I mean here I'm sitting in LA like you know and um, I, the next year ahead I'm, I mean in the next few months I'm going to be in Croatia and Cyprus again I was just in Denmark last week um, like it, it's weird but I love it you know but the other thing that's happening right now is pretty bad like I had to I had to shut down my Facebook yesterday I discovered that I called the police yesterday I was in Albuquerque and I had to phone the, the Scottish police um, my email, all my accounts have been hacked and somebody's been sending threats to people from my email, sending them to me as well and to people. Oh, my God. <laughs> and when I discovered that, because my Facebook's been acting weird for a while. And so I was like, shit. So I called the police and I said, someone's infiltrated all my email accounts because I started getting replies from people, confusing replies. And I was like, I, and then I read the email that was from me. And I was like, that, that doesn't even sound like me. And what's frightening is my email address has the contact details of some government, you know, like the BBC and many, many governments and shit. And I was like, so that's kind of freaky. So I'm smoking again. (laughs) 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 um, 
like I only finished the walk like six weeks ago and um, I I collapsed after about a week I collapsed the exhaustion because I had to it was just a perfect storm like I was adjusting from 5,000 calories a day down to what normal people eat from my height and um, also the fact of the physiological shock of, shock of stopping walking you know but on the last day of the walk, I had like 300 Facebook messages, many from survivors, many of them in countries where they don't have that support and asking me, you know, please tell me what to do. So I finished the walk and like I said, from about 14 countries, a thousand people had flown in. And for that last week, I didn't. I got like an average of two or three hours sleep every night. And I just did back to back drinks and coffee with all these people who'd flown all that distance to see me and be part of the walk. Um, So I felt obliged, you know, as a survivor to be acknowledged. And I I was just constantly talking to people, hearing their stories. And 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 I I totally empathize when you talk about that, when you get big, long emails from people and you absolutely want to respond. But it's just overwhelming. So I went down to London to see my agent and I and I didn't make it like I was I went into a store. It was so weird. I I was in a, I had a, we'd say a shopping trolley, but I had a cart. Hmm. And I, I said to the staff, I was like, can you please watch these groceries? I need to sit down. And I thought I would sit down for five minutes and I'd feel better. But after an hour, I was still sitting there. like I'd become like a lead weight. And they said, do you need an ambulance? And I said, I don't know. And um, I called my friend and he lived not far from where I was. And he came and got me and he said, listen, me and my wife are going on holiday tomorrow. Why don't you just have our apartment? So that was perfect. I was supposed to be on breakfast TV on the Thursday, and I called, and they were really cool. And I said, "I'm, I'm, I'm falling apart. Like I'm, I can't move." And um, and they pushed the, the interview back, and I did it the following week. But I just, I couldn't breathe. You know, I was hyperventilating, and I just felt really heavy. And um, so I went to hospital, and I got all these tests. And the doctor was so funny. He said, "Right," he said, "The problem is, you're really fit and healthy, but um." You've just walked 10,000 miles. <laughs> so he said, so that's what's wrong. And I was like, oh, okay. So, um, yeah, so my heart rate was freaking out. And I was, it was all psychological. I was just stressed out my mind. So. so did you wade through all of those Facebook messages? Did you get anybody to help you with them? Yeah, I, I had to kind of delegate all the problems. Like I had, you know, like the tax thing in the UK, you have to re- submit your tax to the, the office before like the end of March. And I had receipts in 30 languages across 14 currencies for the whole oh. project. And only I was responsible for submitting them. So my brother, thank God, came and he helped me soft, sift through all that shit. And then, like, the van that, that was following me, like, what do I do with it? You know, it's like uh, we're now talking to a museum in, in Glasgow about creating an exhibition, you know, with the map of Europe and my trail. And because people come from all over Europe to Glasgow to see the museum, the transport museum. Um, so that's another meeting I'm having when I go back. But, I mean, the, the thing is, like, I called up. Um, I called up the the mayor of Glasgow, the Lord Provost, and I said, I'd like to speak to you about what child protection measures we have in place. And the Council of Europe have this really cool one in five campaign that I think we should have in Scotland. And um, and it, I've witnessed now, like, when I started this, I couldn't get people to listen to me. Like, you know, it took a couple countries before I managed to get into the British ambassador and into the government. But I come back and I call up and I say, hi, I'm Dr. Matthew McBarish. I want to talk to you about um, the, the Council of Europe's one in five campaign. And I get them they meeting immediately, you know. And so when I go back, I'm meeting the director of education in my country. You know, I mean, it helped. I met the Pope, so that helps. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's amazing. That opened up doors, you know. But it's crazy, you know, like, I, just by walking, I got to speak at the UN. I got, I mean, because the, the, the Secretary General of the Council of Europe walked with me, and I got to speak to him about this, the Lanzarote Convention, and that's what I'm going back to help advise on reform. Is it uh, Pope Francis? Is that the one? Yeah, I met him, yeah. And he seems to have turned a little bit of a corner 
compared to the secrecy of the yeah. Catholic Church previous to him. Um, didn't he issue an apology for? He met. He met personally. I mean, he's meeting survivors, and um, it, I was wondering when I met him if because I wrote to him like a year before I got to Rome, and I I kind of I I kind of I'm not Catholic anymore, but. Um, I was raised Catholic, and I was able to lace the letter with the kind of references, like to to Saint Francis, who walked across to, to he walked to the Vatican and stuff to speak to Pope Innocent, I think it was. Um, and I just said, you know, I'm trying to reach millions of people with the message of the importance and urgency to break your silence. Um, but I said to Pope Francis, if you could say something about this, it would reach billions, and it would. You know, you don't mm -hmm. need to be Catholic. He is one, uh, you know, a world figure. Um, and I got this. I got a letter back a couple months later. I think I was in Romania walking and uh, listening to your show and then the thing you're fucking dogs man it's like the whole country's covered wild dogs and I'm listening to your podcast and you'll be talking like reading a survey and suddenly Herbert will go, and I would like spin around like fuck and there's no dog there and you're like Herbert's you know scratching his ass or whatever and that kept happening but um yeah so I'm walking through Romania and I get this this uh, email from the office in Edinburgh saying we've had a letter from the Vatican and the letter was okay can you tell us more about your campaign and they wanted me to fax them. And I'm in a van in Romania. And I was like, <laughs> who has a fax machine? You know, it's 2014. So, yeah, so um, we, we arranged, like, I send a letter back to Edinburgh and they fax it to, to the Vatican. And then that was the last I heard. And then a couple months later, I go down through Bulgaria, Greece, Cyprus, Malta, and I'm walking back up through Sicily. It was the same day you gave me a shout. I was walking through Sicily and you're like, there's a wee lad walking in the kilt. And I was, I was having a great day. Um, and the phone goes, and it, this guy says, I'm Father, I can't remember his name, I'm calling from the Vatican about your appointment with Pope Francis. And I was like, oh, fuck. Because Italy, uh, sorry, Sicily is like an upside-down egg box. It's like really bumpy, you know, like, mm -hmm. so I have signal here, and I don't have signal here, you know, yeah. and, and I'm walking, I've got to get 30 miles that day. So, I, and he was like, he was like, we just want to confirm your the time and place, you know, the Vatican, obviously. And I was like, okay. I said, I need to check with my colleagues about that, and then I'll call you back. I said, can I call you back? And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no. And he said, I'll call you in two hours from now. And that was it. And then I had to call I had a, a colleague in Geneva and one in Washington who were wanting to be there. And I was like, crap. So, you know, and, and the thing was, I couldn't keep walking in case I walked out of signal. So I just had to wait there for two hours <laughs> for the Vatican to phone back. Um, so that's how that happened. Like, it was kind of really suspicious, not suspicious, kind of weird and mysterious about getting okay. in to meet him. But on the day, you know, and um, it was in, in the Vatican, there was a bunch of other people, about 10 of us, who had this special golden ticket to meet the Pope. And um, the other guy, he was just some guy from, I think he was Iranian, and he had two kids with him. The woman beside me was from Miami. She was just like a really wealthy banker, and I think she had cancer. Um, and so eventually, Pope Francis, he's there, he's on this, this the altar. It's not really an altar, it's like a stage. And he reads this prayer that's read about five times in different languages. And then everyone starts leaving and he comes, walks down the steps and, you know, there he was, he was right in front of me. And it was crazy because like half of my brain is like, you know, half of me was going, right, this guy is the head of the Catholic Church, which is the institution responsible for the misery of millions of people, you know, and the homophobia and the, you know, and their stance on, on uh, contraception, which is spreading AIDS and all this kind of stuff. And the other half of my brain is like, fucking hell, it's the Pope, you know. This little guy is is God, you know. And you can't you can't shake that Catholic conditioning from your childhood. Um, and when he when he finally was standing right in front of me, um, the the, the kind of you know the childhood side when we won, and I had this whole spiel I was ready to give to him, and all I said was, Papa, my my uncle abused me, 
and and that's how I started. <laughs> and he he looked at me and he, before I even got into my spiel, he kind of blessed me. He touched my head, and he's in the most comfortable, normal way. He's really tactile. I guess he's comfortable. He's used to everyone wanting to touch his hand and stuff. Mm. So he put his hand on my shoulder as I explained, and I showed him the route. I got to show him the map where I'm walking around Europe, and I'm trying to speak really clearly because he's you know South American, and he's like nodding along and stuff. And um and when I said you know. We're trying to do this now because if we don't, every fifth child in Europe is going to be sexually abused at some point in the next 18 years. And he kind of just went silent and he closed his eyes and he genuinely, I believe, like he was genuinely pained by just that fact or that knowledge. And I got, I mean, like, I got bashed by the, the gay press and the media in Scotland. And, for and meeting with him. For meeting with him. And they were like, you know, this, this kind of, you know, you don't want to be friends with the Pope if you're a gay activist. But I guess, like, my experience of him was genuine compassion. Like, he genuinely he has this authentic kind of, listen, like, he deeply listens to you, which is quite intense. And I guess, like, for every survivor who's out there, I wish, if it would mean anything to you, if you're a Catholic, I wish you could have that moment when, you know, the guy that we've appointed to represent God on earth looks you in the eye. And, and when I said my uncle abused me, he just looked with such, you know, sorrow, and he blessed me to absolve, you know, the pain. And, um... Yeah, it was just crazy because I was a little Catholic boy when my uncle was abusing me. And so that was just, I mean, I was on a high for like a month after that. And it, after when I've got, I made it my screensaver, the pictures we got of me with the Pope. And then all the way through Spain and Portugal, if the police stopped me, I would just, we called it the Pope card. <laughs> flash like me and the Pope and they're like, oh, I'll let them through. You know, it was awesome. Free coffee everywhere in Europe. You know? How How has doing the walk changed you? We've heard logistically how it's changed your life. How has it changed you, if at all, emotionally um, or spiritually? I have like I have a fear of possessions. You know, I used to have an apartment in London full of crap. I sold everything to pay for the walk. Um, I don't like to accumulate things, you know, and I want to stay that way. I don't want to. I don't because I had to shrink my life into a shoebox of a van, you know. And I want to. I want to proceed that way. I don't want to. I don't want to have all all these. I was reading an article the other day in Time Magazine about three quarters of Americans with garages can't park their car in there because <laughs> they have all this crap. And I never want to get like that. And it was the walk that kind of helped me shred um, my life of what's important. I mean, I practically don't own underwear because I don't wear it. You know, that kind of like if you don't wear it, don't don't own it. You know, mm-hmm. why have a cupboard full of stuff you don't need? Um, so, <laughs> and I'm finding that. Um, I've got a few things to get rid of before that. <laughs> Keep your underwear, man. You're American. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah, I think um, I've, I've this year, like I had, to, I started seeing someone I met in Budapest when I was there and we dated all the way around the walk, long, kind of long distance. And he would fly to whatever city I was coming to next and we'd hang out. And, but then we broke up in December. And I think for me, that's like, okay, I'm done with that now. I'm not, I've, I've noticed this really negative pattern in my relationships. And now that it's happened again, I'm like, fuck, I need to figure out what's going on, you know. Because when I was in London, I think I might have been tipping into sex addiction. I was, you know, on that grinder thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I was meeting too many people. I mean, one day I think I met three different guys, not together, but separately within, within, you know, because I was in London writing scripts for theatre and stuff and you bored and, you know. The, the horrible thing about grinders, you can have a guy at your door faster than a pizza because <laughs> it's like GPS bumming, you know. Um, so I got a bit. I got. A, I had, I'm, I'm pleased at the moment that I'm just not interested in having a relationship. I want to. I'm reading Guy Winch's uh, 
is it emotional first aid mm-hmm. my brother Mojo who sent me up for the show he, he, he bought me that for Christmas so I'm going to read that. I'm really excited to read that and do a bit of work on on rumination and especially because my Facebook and emails have been hacked that's the perfect fodder for really oh my panicking and, and you know and really getting into that that's more. a rumination nuclear bomb yeah, so I mean, I, I'm just like, I hand it over to the police, you know, I've, I've had to delete the Facebook and, and all the apps from my phone and say, I'm not, it's not me, and I've, I put, I was, yesterday I was in Albuquerque airport, and um, and I put on Facebook, all my email accounts have been hacked, if you receive an email from me, just screenshot it and save it, and as I posted it, it got deleted, and I was like, fuck, wow. so that was scary, because my phone got stolen in Madrid really suspiciously. Um, it vanished from from my lap pretty much, mm-hmm. and I was looking around the cafe going, "Who took my phone?" And we watched because it was an Apple, it was an iPhone. You can watch where your phone is, and within an hour, it vanished. Like it, they'd wiped it. I don't know who they are, but um, I guess I'm pissing off a lot of people. <laughs> you know, so. but you're also changing a lot of people's lives. Do you ever just sit and think about how many lives you've changed in in the wake of the walk? Um. No, I mean, like I know that's impossible that's for impossible, a, Catholic, yeah. a former Catholic to answer. <laughs> every every bone in your body is saying, "Don't you dare sound fully yourself." Yeah, no. That's, I mean, I I have these theories about why I did the walk, you know, and um, and the there's like four reasons that I did it, and the first one was that my uncle once told me, he literally said, "Don't tell anyone." And so part of my brain was like 5% of the walk was a big fuck you. You know, like, he's like, well, don't tell anyone. Okay, I'm going to tell the Pope. You know, it's like, I'm going to tell <laughs> hundreds of millions of people in 30 languages, you know. Um, and so that that is, I know that's like maybe 2% of the walk was a revenge against what he did. But um, um, the other one I think is like, if you, my uncle used me like a sex toy throughout my entire formative years, you know, through the early kind of developmental stages right through puberty, and he messed me up so bad. Um, and I, I have no, I have no grasp on my self worth, and I still struggle with that, like psychological entitlement. I've never owned a car, and if I ever try to buy a car, I think, do I deserve a car? Um, and so, m- part of me is like, maybe the whole walk was a, a kind of trying to do good things that I can write down on paper, you know, if I if I enhance if this if this meeting in June goes well, I will effectively have created uh, an enhancement of human rights across 820 million people. And I can put that on paper and go, well, I must be a good person because I did that, you know. Yeah. Um and the other half of that coin is actually that masochism thing of I deserve this bullshit because I was you know I was constantly I have two kilts this one is for pictures and the other one was identical but now it's all teeth marked and I had to get vaccinated for rabies you know I had constant chest infections walking up the Baltic Sea and you know walking for 12 hours in direct sunlight in 40 degrees you know well you 70 or 80 Fahrenheit I suppose it'd be walking in a blizzard through the snow you know walking in a hurricane in Poland just that constant 12 hour punishment and thinking, you know, I need, I deserve this, you know, and sleeping in a van that leaked on my face, you know, every night. So part of it was that masochism thing of, you know, you know, this kind of weird Catholic self-punishment. Um, and the fourth reason, I think, is that thing of when, if you're ever in a store and there's a little lady trying to reach for a cereal box on the shelf too high, you automatically... Make fun of her? <laughs> kick her, yeah. yeah. No, um, you automatically reach for it and you hand it to her. And there's no question that you would do that, that you would help someone who can't can't get to that stage when you can. And when I realized that, you know, this this law that we have in Europe is so simple, like, you know, 
there are children and there will be more victims in the future who don't have a voice and I have a voice. And I was just like, well, why wouldn't I help? Why wouldn't I speak? And it's just that automatic, you know. And yeah, I think thankfully that one wins out. So. Do you feel like you are able to uh, love yourself more easily now? Or at least not loathe yourself? Well, the, my boyfriend that I was I was dating kind of he dumped me on Facebook. <laughs> he, we were dating and then he just kind of vanished. And I I suspect he was already seeing someone else. But again, that's maybe his account got hacked and it was somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> and he's wondering where the fuck you went. So, um, but I think that that again is a kind of situation that I could ruminate on and go, what you know, what did I do? Was I too weird when we we're having sex? Was I you know not you know all that kind of stuff that I could go back and worry about? So, yeah. I mean, it's 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 nice. Like I still daily at the moment get when when I get back onto my emails, get emails from people telling me how the walks inspired them to you know see a counselor or or start their their journey of healing. And it does help. That's beautiful to hear. Yeah, but um, I I wrote down seminal moments. I don't know if I covered them. Maybe I did. <laughs> uh, yep, I covered them both. And I wrote some fears and loves. I don't know if you still do that on the show. Let's do a couple. Hit me with some fears. Oh, okay. And if people want to um, contact you, uh, roadtochange.org? It's dot .eu. Road oh, to, dot .e. Roadtochange.eu. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Road to Change or Road to Change? Road to Change. Okay. Yeah. So, um... Oh, man. Uh, so, I'm... <laughs> I'm scared that I'm too complicated for anyone to ever truly get me, and I'll always feel alone even when I'm with someone. I'm afraid that even though I'm doing so much work on it, that I'll never able to be truly, truly intimate and let my defense defenses down and n- let go of the critical part of my brain. Oh, so you have that too? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, oh God, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Bless you. Too bad I'm not gay. We'd be perfect for each other. I know, other. man. What a night we'd have, man. Yeah. Seriously. Um, <laughs> um, I'm scared that I'll never fully push myself to realize my goals because I don't believe I, I'm worthy of them. Do you realize how ridiculous that one sounds coming from you? Uh, the the thing that you just accomplished. You climbed. You climbed Mount Everest. I claimed the Alps. Everest isn't in Rio. <laughs> Dude, it's you. You put that thing together. I know you had help from people, but that is that. Everybody, I think, wants to die knowing that they left their mark on the world. You have left an indisputable mark on the world. There's no disputing it. There's no... You changed laws. You changed fucking laws. There are people whose lives are being protected now because of... And it's not like you just made a phone call. You fucking planned for two years. You walked 10,000 miles. You had nights of two hours of sleep. You got sunburned. Your fucking toes and fingers froze. You have left a a beautiful, beautiful legacy in this world, and yet still I don't like you. I know, right? (laughs) I (laughs) cock. 
<laughs> and for my next trick. Yeah. Dude, seriously. Don't make me get up and slap you. <laughs> and I will not yell freedom. Well, it's, it's weird when you say it like that. I mean, it's like, well, yeah, that's what happened, but it's not. I can't, you can't feel it. Well, not at the moment, because, like, I'm really jittery because someone's attacking me, so... Um, and that's one of my fears, is, like, I'm I'm really scared that I've pissed off some very powerful paedophile rings in Europe, and they're going to try and kill me or hurt my family. And that's, like, an actual reality, like... And it's really scary. And it... You know, I, I, thank fuck I've got the Scottish police. The You know, they're on my side, and I'm just going to hand over all my online stuff and go, mm-hmm. look, you know, because they could... And, and it, that's the thing, like in the UK, like the, the paedophile rings are going right up to government. You know, there's there's some dark, dark energies that you're working with. Dude, you have given out so much positive karma to the universe. You've you have you have made your statement. You have made your statement that is undeniable. It's not like you came out and said, "I'm." I'm against pedophilia being covered up. You've gone to incredible lengths to walk the walk and not just talk to the talk. So if it comes down between you and somebody else's word, somebody who hasn't walked 10,000 miles, who the fuck do you think we're going to believe? Yeah. Give me your next fear, because I can't, I can't even stay on that one anymore. Uh, um um, I've always been the strong one in relationships. I'm scared that if I meet someone who's sorted and secure, then I'll finally fall apart. And what would what would happen if you fell apart? Be vulnerable. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Then, I guess. Then you might get hurt. I just don't want to lose control. But dude, there's no vulnerability without letting go. I know it's easier said than done. I have, I have the same fucking, same fucking issue. But I, I do have moments where I let go and I silence that critical part of my brain, and I get vulnerable, and it's scary, but it's also beautiful. You know, one of the things I've noticed in asking you emotionally how this has changed you, there's kind of you kind of de- deflecting it a little bit, like you don't want to go inside and maybe that's this sounds cheesy as fuck but maybe that's your next journey is the one inside yourself to to learn how to let go maybe a support group or something um yeah because like there's a there's one in norway and um i was in copenhagen a couple weeks ago and my friends who are survivors are going to go up to norway and do this kind of retreat where you get to fall apart and i've never done that oh that'd be beautiful but i called them up and i was like can i come into the and they're like norwegian government are so wealthy they pay for the whole thing you know and i was like i'd love to so love to do that weekend and they were like well you hacked me on facebook fuck off (laughs) no they were like they were like we don't have any spaces left but maybe you could come and do a talk and i'm like oh fuck you know again being you know because that's Mm -hmm. what i do is i give talks you know i'm flying to all over the place to give talks and i'm like can i be the guy can i just fall apart yeah can you call him back yeah. Check back in with them? Yeah. Well, I've, I can't get into my email until I get back to Scotland, and it's a fucking nightmare. Fuckers. I try not to send out hate. Like, I don't I don't like to do that. So I just bless whoever the fucker is who's pissing with me. Yeah. And just hope they fuck off. You're you're putting so much light out into the world. There's, I, I just have this feeling you're going to be okay. 
that this is going to blow over. Um, but it's cool. Like, I mean, I'm 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 here, like in the states, because it's Child Abuse Prevention Month, and tomorrow I'm doing a concert in Houston, so I'm going to be singing. And um, that's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of it's really nice to get up and sing and just do that creative stuff again. But, um, yeah, I've got a friend. She runs Not on Our Watch America Foundation in, in Houston. She's fucking badass. She walked with me from Slovenia to Croatia for a week. Let's give her a shout out. Yeah, Randa Fox, you're fucking awesome. She knows it. She's just she's such an inspiration to me, and she's going to really make some fucking changes here in the states. That's beautiful. Yeah, let's do some loves. Okay, um, I love listening to someone rant when they really know what they're talking about. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. I've never heard that one before. Um, I love seeing beautifully photographed or filmed scenery in Ireland and yeah. Scotland too. Yeah. Um, I watched a thing and I'm not just saying that cause you're here, but I do have a dream of one day going to Ireland and, and Scotland and, um, just immersing myself in the culture and the, the nature there. But I watched this thing last night on Netflix and it was this guy who fucking loves nature and he's just taking a canoe down uh, the River Shannon and talking about how it's evolved over the last 20, 30 years. And this bird is here now. They've migrated from Spain because temperatures are warmer and they need a cooler climate. And then this bird is not here as much now because, you know, this other predator came up from this and listen to that that's them letting their babies know that there's food over here and and you like that oh dude it's so <laughs> it, it was like the most comfort it was like a cup of cocoa before bed oh and yeah it just yeah. made me want to um get on a plane get in a canoe and just go down the, the river shannon do you call it the shannon river or the river shannon uh river shannon i guess yeah yeah yeah. But I love that. I just, uh, you know, I think also because my my dad's side of the family is is from Ireland. Mm. Um, you should come. You should do the Edinburgh Festival. You know, I would love to do the Edinburgh Festival, but um, I don't. I, I kind of stopped doing stand up comedy. Oh, so I don't know what. Well, you should I come would, and do some podcasts. Oh, I'd love. I'd love to do that. I could hook you up. Like um, after this, I'm going over to you know Lynn Ferguson. She's like Craig's sister. Mm -mm. Um, I mean, all my friends here in LA are like comedians. That's how people kind of hooked me up and stuff. Yeah. A lot of our mutual friends on Facebook are comedians, Scottish comedians. Um, yeah, if you come over, man, we'll show you around. And, but I definitely come and do a podcast like week or so. You could get loads done, you know. You, you, I could set you up with some really cool... We've got some great Scottish listeners who I've corresponded with. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I love the show, but, uh, you know, 95% of the voices are American voices, understandably. Mm -hmm. But it's really cool to... You know, there was a French guy at one point, and just to hear a different... Because I know that there's people in Finland and Denmark who listen to your show, you know? Uh, one of my dreams is to um, ha have the show's budget be enough that I could do a trip through uh, Europe. Yeah. Go to London, um, go to, I don't know, maybe uh, Edinburgh, uh, maybe Dublin, mm -hmm. and then I would love to hit some of the Scandinavian countries. Yeah, and interview people. I would fucking love it's that. It's actually not that expensive. I mean, well, Scandinavia is a fucker, but you know, yeah. actually, once you're in Europe, flights are real cheap. You know? Are they? Seriously, yeah. Like, but then you got hotel. 
No, you but I know people in every city, man. If you want yeah. to do that, I'll hook you up. Like, seriously, yeah. I've got friends now. I mean, I'm, I've got free vacations for the rest of my life. If I want to go yeah. anywhere, I'm like, hey, guys, I'm coming. <laughs> you know. Um, All right, give me another love. Um, oh, I love... My brother and I have this favourite movie. It's called Scrooge. And um, it's it's the Albert Finney musical version of A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. And all year, we watch it on Christmas Eve with my dad. We used to do that every year. And But the whole year, you know, I'll be in a meeting or something, and I'll get a text from my brother, and it's just a random quote from that movie. <laughs> I love <laughs> that. Like, and it just always makes my heart smile. And uh, we just do it all year, you know. And, um, yeah, he's awesome. It's just it's so, it's so random in camp, this movie. is from the 70s with... Albert Finney's this kind of Mm -hmm. I mean that movie Scrooge has done so many ways you know like Mm -hmm. the Bill Murray one and it's the most remade story but we love this kind of um, crap 70s version I love seeing family members make each other laugh yeah Uh, I love love my family my brothers are so funny yeah Yeah. we always try and outdo each other give me uh, give me one more love Um, I love that day in like July when you go into Starbucks and they've switched to the Christmas beverage. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, Santa's coming. Fucking awesome. Yeah. I normally say that's a beautiful one to end on. I cannot end on one that has Starbucks in it. Oh, sorry. Give okay. me another. I don't know. I don't, I don't dislike Starbucks. I, uh, I, I just want a different one than that. Um, okay. I love when I'm shopping with someone and they pick something up and go, oh, this is gorgeous. I love this. And then they put it back and forget about it. And like seven months later, you give them it for Christmas and they're like stoked. That I is beautiful. That. Yeah. That is fucking beautiful. And you are a beautiful man, Maddie McVarish. You are a beautiful fucking human being and the planet is lucky to have you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. That is one special, special human being. Just, uh, I'm so proud when I have guests like him on the podcast. I'm so proud to be doing what I'm doing and to be able to um, collaborate with uh, with people like uh, like Maddie. That's just uh, I think I was high for a week after I recorded that. I just couldn't. I recorded it actually about a week ago, and uh, I've just been so excited to to share that with you guys because I know I know you uh, feel the same way about him that that I do. I guess I'm I'm just kind of fumbling for words because um, you just um, I just think about all the effort that went into what he did and what he's been through, and uh, and I'm sure what he will still be going through you know as he as he heals but it it um just leaves me speechless before i get to some surveys and um i don't think i have any emails i think it's just surveys want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. You can go to the website, which is mentalpod.com, and you can make a one-time PayPal donation. Uh, or you can do my favorite and become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It um, It's super easy to do. It's super simple to set up, and then you don't have to do anything. And uh, it really, really helps the show. Um, we really need you, uh, your monthly donors. And, um, you know, the the... 
the more you guys contribute, the more we can expand the show. You know, like I was talking with Maddie, I really want to, um, I want to go do episodes on the road. I want to record, um, some of you guys in person that live in other countries. Um, you know, I talked about the UK and Scandinavia. I also really want to go, um, to other parts of Europe and I really want to go to Australia because, uh, I love, I love you. You Aussies, you're, you're really great supporters of the show. All right, I'm I'm kissing enough fucking ass. I'm starting to make myself sick. Um, you can also support the show uh, by, when you shop at Amazon, uh, enter through the search portal on our homepage. It's on the right-hand side about halfway down. And Amazon will give us a couple of nickels if you buy something and it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, and you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes and writing something nice about the show. That's a really important way to, to help us because uh, it boosts our ranking and then that brings more people to the show. And you can support us uh, non-financially also by uh, just spreading the word through social media. That that helps greatly. So um, the more people that listen to the show, the more people that get comfort from the show, hope more entertainment or whatever you get out of it, um, but also the more people that um, can help support it and expand it because uh, I have lots of ideas for how I'd like to expand it. But at this point, many of them are limited by uh, our, our budget. All right, let's get to some surveys. This is the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this was filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself uh, Baby Flower. About her depression, she writes, My depression is when I start to see colors in gray in winter and start to dread the summer. I've never dreaded summer, but um, I think what she's saying is instead of seeing color in winter, she sees gray. In which case, I would completely identify with that. And if she's not, she's saying when she looks at things that are gray in winter and she sees colors, then I think she's on acid and I want a hit of it. Uh, About her love addiction, she writes, if I could just find an affirmation that I am lovable. About her codependency, when he doesn't call me and ask me to come over, I feel immense abandonment. When I am with him, I wonder if he will ever love me enough to commit to me in any way. I can't ever escape these thoughts. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, and a snapshot from her life. When I lay in bed and I feel bugs crawling in my skin, when I start to lose sight of colors, when thoughts that maybe I am manipulative and worthless because I can't keep one relationship, not friends or a romantic relationship, I then know I am too far gone and I need to go get help, but I'm too lazy and pathetic to do so. Thank you for sharing that. This is a shame and secret survey. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself Tumblr. And uh, he is straight. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Something happened with a babysitter when I was very young. I don't remember it or know the specifics, but my parents left a hidden camera and ended up firing her. My family doesn't talk about it, but I get the feeling that something is wrong about that time in my life. There was a fair amount of emotional incest in my family. I was the oldest in my family, and my mother told me things and acted inappropriately at times. She would never see it that way, but now that I'm older, it bothers me. She would ask me or my brother to sleep in the bed with her when my dad was away on business, when we were well into our teens. That's gross. Uh, Their room was near my brother uh, and I's room, and I could hear them fuck from time to time. I assume you're talking about your dad and your mom and not your mom and your brother. Uh, Either way, it's a terrific show. Uh, She still makes comments about my body and will grab or grope me or make comments about my physique that make me uncomfortable. These things usually just make me feel a shiver go down my spine like I need to recoil or disappear. 
Um, he's been emotionally abused. We were not allowed privacy in the house I grew up in. When I was in seventh grade, my first girlfriend wrote me a letter. I remember it was in a pink envelope and she had sprayed it with perfume. I hid it in my room. My mom found it and became irate that I was keeping secrets from her. That makes me sick to my stomach and sad. Uh, there was nothing in the letter that would cause concern from a parent's perspective. I can only think that my mother was jealous. Uh... Any positive experiences with your abusers? Yes, I've had many great experiences with my family. I know that they love me and they would never intentionally hurt me. That complicates things quite a bit for me. Darkest thoughts. I ruminate about horrible things happening to people that I love and how I might react or how it would or could affect my life. I wish sometimes that something outwardly horrible happened to me or someone I love uh, so that I can feel like I have justification in feeling the way that I do. Um, I think you, I think you have those things. Um, I, I people who are regular listeners to the show know that I relate very much to, to this. And let me just say, it's taken me a couple of decades of therapy and support groups to finally give weight that what happened to me is, you know, uh, fucked up. And let me save you two decades of hemming and hawing about whether or not, you know, what happened to you uh, was fucked up. It was fucked up. All right. Uh, darkest thoughts. I sexualize almost every woman I meet. I envision them naked or what it would be like to fuck them, even women I'm not attracted to. I would never want to know the kind of porn that I watch. Oh, I would never want anyone to know the kind of porn that I watch. That would be tough to never know the kind of porn that you watch. You just have to have parts of it blocked out. I think he's he's he fucking he's fucking a pumpkin. I think I'm not sure. I can't tell if it's a pumpkin or a head. <laughs> um, rough anal porn has been my favorite since as long as I can remember. Well, if you're gonna go anal, why wouldn't you go rough? What what is the purpose of I like I like gentle anal porn? I don't think I've ever read that one. <laughs> my favorite porn is tender anal porn. One of your darkest secrets. I found my parents' sex toys when I was 12 or 13, and I used to take them out and mess with them when I would masturbate. I wouldn't necessarily use them, but having them around was arousing. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I often fantasize about holding down different women that I know and fucking them from behind. I don't want them to disapprove of what I'm doing, but I want to physically overpower them. Um, and that an older woman is giving me head, a mom type. I see the parallels here with my past, and I find it disturbing afterward. There is no reason to be disturbed about that. That is completely human. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I long to be able to open up to a woman that loves me and for her to accept my being weak in that moment, to be comforted and understood. That's beautiful. Uh, if you shared these things with others, I've opened up to a long-term girlfriend, and it was one of the most powerful experiences of my life. My family does not share feelings at all, so it was something that was completely new to me. It sounds corny, but for a year or so afterward, um, I felt like I was reborn. Again, beautiful. Beautiful. You sound like a great guy. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel sad. It brought up a lot of things to the surface that I usually try to tuck back down. I also feel like everything I wrote was completely disjointed and fragmented. I thought about going back and writing things out more clearly, but fuck it. I think it was very clear what um, what you wrote. And, um, you know, if, if um, you feel 
moved uh, to go check out a support group. I think one f- for incest survivors might be a might be a good one to to go to and tell that part of your brain that's saying it doesn't qualify as incest. Tell that part to go fuck your fuck itself. Can you tell what t- color tea it is? That's green tea. I think it's got a different slurp than uh, than black tea. This is struggle in a sentence filled out by hanging on. She uh, writes about being a sex crime victim. I was roofied and raped and contracted chlamydia. I confessed to my boyfriend and he told me I was lying and seeking attention because I don't want to take responsibility. Not only should you leave him if you if if your car isn't readily available, call Uber and get the fuck away from this guy immediately. Immediately. He does not deserve you. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself sorry. I fill out so many goddamn surveys, but not really. Go fuck yourself. That might be the longest name we've ever had. Um, her happy moment, she writes, Today I want to l- went on a little road trip adventure, which was fun on its own, but the real icing on the cake was coming home and listening to an older episode of the show while eating pizza. I'm not sure which episode it was, one of the newer ones, I think, but when you asked the guest if he placed on the autism spectrum because of his obvious discomfort with making eye contact, I had to pause the episode for the onslaught of supernova-esque chain reaction of many revelations. I thought about my own day and my own interactions with strangers and I realized that I really like people. Like, I really, really like people. I have a hard time feeling comfortable with people or being confident around them or even making eye contact with them, but holy moly, I love them. I spent the rest of the evening thinking about my future and how I want to be a social worker and maybe it's just because things are finally starting to look up for me in a general sense, but I am so excited to start moving forward. God, I love people. Love it. Love it. That's one of my favorite things about doing this uh, this gig is uh, that the happy moments when you know or the breakthroughs or the bittersweet moments. those are the ones I really love when when somebody's laugh alternating between laughing and crying, that might be that might be my favorite because that's just like life condensed down into 30 seconds. That's not tea. I'm actually um, drinking my own cum. It's it's very thin. I probably should see a doctor. Uh, this is shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself history geek. She's straight in her twenties. Was raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, but she qualifies writing. My parents were unemotional, and my sister often emotional emotionally bullied me when I was depressed. I wouldn't call that stable and safe. Um, I should probably add another category to that where uh, there was no overt abuse, but there was the absence of emotional connection. I should, I should definitely, let me, let me make a note of that. Um, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, through mutual friends, I was introduced to a mysterious older guy who I became enamored with. I began her sexual relationship with him, hoping that he would fall in love with me. I found out that he had a steady girlfriend, and I found out found out things about him that were really shady. So one day when he was over at my house, I told him that I didn't want to see him anymore. He kept trying to push for, quote, one more time, and I kept saying no, but he continued to grope and force me to touch his dick and try to get my clothes off. And this was all in my childhood home with my parents 
upstairs. I felt horrified. I couldn't move. I just sat there as he touched me and shoved him off occasionally, but he would continue. And this went on for 90 minutes or so. And then I drove him home. It didn't hit me that I had been sexually assaulted until I was driving home. I felt disgusted with myself that I just sat there. I thought it was my fault that I let this continue so long with such a horrible human being and that I couldn't push him off of me and kick him out of my own house. Uh, she'd never been physically abused or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I often think about killing other women, walking up to a group of girls sitting together and laughing and having a good time and just killing them all. I am a feminist, but I hate other women and often view them as annoying and trivial and as competition to me to win over a man. I often think about killing children. Every child I see, I wish was dead. I often fantasize about being a famous serial killer, putting myself in the shoes of someone like Ted Bundy and imagining me committing his crimes, or I think about being the brutal dictator of a country and having the power to kill anyone I wanted. Uh, Darkest secrets. I purposely slept with men knowing that they had a girlfriend because I wanted to ruin their relationship. I feel like I secretly want everyone to be miserable as I am when it comes to social relations. I told uh, a woman that I slept with her boyfriend anonymously on the internet just so I could watch it all be destroyed. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have strong incest fantasies and strong fantasies about being a sexual slave. I think about being physically abused while having sex. It makes me feel really dirty because nobody knows this side of me and I feel like it's really degrading to me and I consider myself a feminist and it makes me feel shame. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my sister that when she would accuse me of faking mental illness for attention, uh, I would get suicidal. When she convinced my parents I was faking it, I completely shut out my family emotionally because they only made it hurt worse. My sister still doesn't believe I'm bipolar and tries to tell me what to do with my medication and my mom sides with her because she graduated med school. I am terrified of my sister and I wish I could tell her that it's because of her that I felt like I had no one to turn to as a teenager and that the only way out was through death. She convinced me that nobody cared about my problems. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to find my soulmate who loves me more than anyone he's ever loved before. I want to have a love that is reciprocated and a partner that is my best friend and will hang out with me inside all day because I don't want to leave the house most days. Uh, have you shared these things with others? No, I pride myself on being a feminist and my friends are all feminists and I feel like sharing that would cause them all to hate me. I feel like every woman in their right mind would hate me. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. It still kind of disturbs me that I hate women so much because it's so illogical. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You can still be a feminist and remain uncomfortable around women. I dealt with the rejection of female platonic relationships all throughout my childhood and the experience of men choosing other women over me. I do not actively hate women. I am just damaged from my experience and need to work on the way I think about it. Well, thank you for sharing that, and it sounds like you're in a lot of pain, and um, and like there's a uh, a void of of intimacy in uh, in your life and in personal relationships, and I can tell you um, that that can that is something that can improve. It can improve, but uh, we gotta we gotta get out of our comfort zone and ask for help. So if you're not if you're not in therapy, I'd I'd really encourage you to uh, to check it out. But um, thank you for for sharing all that stuff. <laughs> 
and sending you some love. I almost choked on that sip of tea. That was actually half tea, half jizz. This is um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Noah Juan. And about his depression, he writes, You are a horrible person on the inhale. You are a horrible person on the exhale from the moment I wake up. So if you're not thinking you're a horrible person while you're holding your breath, that must mean you're full of yourself. I cast you to the sea. Sending you some love. I can't. I can't. Just the nature of the show. I can't. I can't leave it with a with a with a joke like that. Is that bad? Is that annoying that that I have to follow that up with a no? I'm just kidding. I think it is. I don't know. I'm having a perfectionist angst moment. This is the body shame survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Forgotten Gypsy. She writes, um, what do you like or dislike about your body? She writes, uh, cellulite in unusually large stretch marks. I don't feel I look normal in clothes, much less out of them. I also have a high forehead like Christina Ricci. I am super self-conscious and it is further brought to my attention by an aunt who thinks she is hilarious by calling it my five head and smacking me in the head and yelling, give me five in front of people. I hate it. I've told her to stop and she thinks I'm being sensitive and stupid, uh, that she's just joking so it's okay. She sounds like uh, really an awful fucking person and um, I'm sure it wouldn't be healthy, but my first instinct was... For you to send me a picture of her so I can find the meanest thing that you can say back to her when she does that. I'm super tempted to have you do that. Probably not the healthiest thing, but that 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 was when I read that, I was just like, oh, I want to fucking take that woman down. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself River Duck. She writes, a teacher of mine went diving. He brought back this small abalone shell, and on the back of the shell was this barnacle. I love stuff like this, and I still do. I was his teacher's assistant at the time, and I remember I was admiring this small life that was sticking its little tongue in and out, blowing little bubbles as it did so. I heard him quietly say, I brought it for you, uh, with this sort of tenderness. I don't know if he expected me to hear that. I was really depressed at that time, and I knew he knew that. I was 17, but I felt like a five-year-old. I felt this sort of wonderful embarrassment, the sort of feeling I imagine a father giving his young child. The shell made me smile. That teacher often made me smile and sometimes laugh uncontrollably. I wonder why this memory resonates in my mind. My parents were emotionally distant and neglectful, and I feel a little bit conceited and vain for taking such pleasure in the small, kind words from this man I think so highly of, but I still smile. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that beautiful moment. I th- I don't think you're conceited or vain for being touched by that. You know, most of us that grew up in environments that were uh, emotionally invalidating or um, just kind of emotional deserts. Uh, God, I remember playing hockey one time. I would have been in my 30s, and... Um, 
it was it was uh, roller hockey, and it used to be this group of guys and girls, and we'd we'd get together and we'd play on uh, these tennis courts. And somehow, um, a couple of the people that were playing that day knew it was my birthday, and they brought me birthday presents. And it, you know, I, I started to cry because I, it just, I don't, I don't know exactly why. I think it's the kind of the same. It seemed like such a small thing, but it it seemed so pure. And um, yeah, I love that. So thank you for sharing that. And um, I'm glad I could ruin it, ruin it by um, just grinding the show to a halt while I stumbled over my words. This is the Shame and Secret Survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Piccadilly. And I just wanted to read a couple of excerpts from it. Um, she was emotionally abused and she writes, uh, my mom always acted like she didn't like me. She would be very angry with me a lot of the time and I never knew how she'd react to me. She told me I was a fat, smelly, lazy lump sitting in the corner of her living room and that she wished my school friend was her daughter instead. She would refuse to speak to me for hours if I offended her. I remember this once happened because I had the hiccups and the noise annoyed her. When I was about eight, I laughed and sprayed coke over the table on holiday, and she was furious with me for a week. She didn't beat me, but she used to throw things at me or slap me if she lost her temper. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, I believe my mom loves me and that she thinks she did a good job raising me. She sometimes acts loving and as if she cares about me. She has always provided for me financially and practically. I love her a lot, and this makes it hard for me to accept that she abused me, if that's what happened. Oh yeah, that is definitely abuse. Um, darkest thoughts? I wish I had a couple... I wish I had a more concrete trauma, which I could tie to my problems, uh, instead of vague first-world problems. Wow, that take that that takes my breath away. That, that you... Don't think that that is traumatic. What your mom, the things that your mom said to you, that is abuse of the highest order. That is absolutely as abusive, if not more abusive, than somebody, you know, punching their child. Um, uh, oh, I just want to hug you. Um, Anyway, continuing, I wish for something bad to happen to someone I love to give me an excuse to feel the way I do, or at least to distract me. I wish I could think of a way to kill myself that I wasn't too scared to carry out. Darkest secrets, I eat compulsively and I am extremely overweight. I am very embarrassed about this. I probably eat three or four times as much as other people and I think about food all the time. It has reached uh, an extent where I have almost disabled myself. I find it difficult to walk for more than a few minutes and difficult to climb stairs. I increasingly can't fit into the furniture in public places. It, it, who wouldn't feel emotionally overwhelmed with the template you were raised with in childhood? Who wouldn't be engaging in some type of compulsive behavior to numb the pain and the loneliness. Um, oh, I'm sending you some love. Uh, please go talk to somebody. Please go talk to a therapist about this because um, what happened to you is is really, really fucked up. 
this is the body shame survey, and this was filled out by Rose. And she writes, I struggled with self-harm for almost 10 years and have scars all over my body. I'm deeply ashamed of them because I see them as evidence that there is something wrong with me. Although I have not harmed myself in over five years, I know I will have to live with the scars for the rest of my life, and I have no one to blame but myself. I hide my scars most of the time because I worry that when people see them, they will think I am crazy or unstable. Call me crazy, but I say you look at them and you remind yourself that you are fucking still here, that you have endured feeling overwhelmed. And sure, we all could have reacted to things differently, you know, the first 40 years of my life, I reacted in the worst way possible to things that overwhelmed me. Um, but why don't you look at them and say, I'm, I am fucking strong because I am still here. Or tell me to go fuck myself. You know, I'm in the kind of a mood where if you told me to go fuck myself, um, I might enjoy it. I might enjoy it. I might give you a little tip of the cap. I'd have to go buy a cap first, but uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Physics Freak, who sent me a nice email. Uh, we read uh, one of her uh, surveys on the previous show. I love that when I get surveys, um, when I get emails from you guys um, sharing how you you felt when you heard your survey being read. Um, yeah, it really touches me. Anyway. Uh, her happy moment is uh, she writes cuddled up in bed reading a nonfiction book not an unusual occurrence for me I found myself caught off guard when the author revealed an untimely death of one of the young woman women he had gotten to know while writing this book um, my eyes welled up and tears started stre- streaming down my face I had been captivated by the description of this woman and I realized I had the intense desire to meet her especially after learning she ran a restaurant only a couple of hours from me Now, knowing this would never come to fruition, the tears evolved to sobbing. I then suddenly realized that this was the first time I had felt connected to another human being in so long. The sobbing now became interspersed with maniacal laughter. Here I am, actually feeling something for another person, and my tears were suddenly beautiful to me. Even though I was feeling sad, it wasn't the overwhelming dread that it usually felt like. It was something I hadn't even known could be missing, and feeling it again made me so happy. So I just sat in bed, laugh crying, and it was great. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself paralyzed by choice. And uh, she is um, bisexual. She's 18 and she was raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? She writes some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, She writes, I'm pretty sure this doesn't count, but feel compelled to mention it anyway. When I was around 11 or 12, a boy around my same age did something strange. He touched my privates over my clothes with an object. I yelped and moved back. He laughed, repeated the action, and asked if I liked that. I just remember this feeling of pure fear flooding my body. I should clarify that aside from other sexual comments, this was an isolated incident. Um, And... I think the important thing to remember in this is the phrase, I just remember this feeling of pure fear flooding my body. You know, when we experience that, that counts. That counts because what doesn't matter, you know, the other person's attention, intention 
shouldn't factor into whether something is abuse or not as much as what we felt when we experienced it. Because this isn't about, you know, prosecuting that other person. This is about processing our feelings and giving weight to them so that we can fully process them and hopefully heal and move on and, and, and stop feeling stuck. Uh, darkest thoughts. I think that in any given situation, my brain is always asking itself, what is the stupidest, ugliest, most repre- reprehensible thing you could do right now? Hey, what if you did that? I will be doing something totally ordinary and suddenly think, what if you just stabbed everyone here with a needle? What if you raped a kid? I also have a lot of self-destructive thoughts. I tend to have suicidal and semi-suicidal episodes immediately followed by periods where I am completely terrified of death and afraid that by contemplating suicide, I've somehow indicated to the universe that it has the right to strike me dead at any moment. I often find myself fantasizing about cutting my face open. I've cut myself in other places, but no one has ever noticed the scars, and I think a part of me just wants to be seen and known without my having to explain anything. Darkest secrets. I almost feel like my deepest, darkest secret is that I don't have any deepest, darkest secrets. I live mostly in my own head. I'm often too afraid to act, even on simple things. I sometimes feel like I have no good reason to be the way I am, which is unhappy and fidgety and afraid. Oh, if you only knew how many of us feel unhappy, fidgety, and afraid. Uh, Continuing, however, I have no friends. I haven't in years. I think at some point I just lost the ability to interact with other human beings in any way that will make them want to continue interacting with me. I'm so afraid of being in any kind of group situation that I almost can't talk at all. I could talk more comfortably in a one-on-one situation, but I never feel like I'm being myself. I just make mindless small talk until they get bored and go away. I don't blame them because I know I'm boring. Uh, I'm afraid that I've spent so long just trying to be okay that I don't even have a personality anymore. I don't know what I like or what I want. I don't even have a favorite color. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Anal, dirty talk, and women humping inanimate objects. I want to be fucked by two men at once, one vaginally and one anally, while I suck on one woman's breasts and another sucks on mine. Uh, It's foreplay. I want them to tell me exactly... Can that happen? Can two women suck on each other's breasts at the same time? Is that? Uh... Oh, I guess yeah. You'd have to be uh, one. You'd have to be upside down. That would be what's what's half of sixty nine. You can't divide sixty nine. Um, and get a whole number. Sexual positions should only be whole numbers. Um, continuing. Uh... As foreplay, I want them to tell me exactly what they're going to do to me. The more explicit, the better. A smaller part of me wants to masturbate while I watch another woman hump a pillow or inflatable object to orgasm. How does sharing that make me feel? Aroused. Just a little. I wasn't kidding about the dirty talk thing. The second one feels a bit more perverse, though. Part of me wonders if being sexually aroused by interaction with inanimate objects is a sign that I am fundamentally fundamentally disconnected from other human beings. You know, when I first read this, my first thought was I wonder if it has a connection to the fact that that trauma that you experienced was with a guy touching you uh, against your wishes with an object. Um, But either way, embrace. Embrace what turns you on. Embrace it. Throw the shame out the window and get your, your freak on. Um, and I, that is not me calling you a freak, by the way. 
Um, what, if anything, do you, do you wish for? I wish I knew how to make other people happy instead of just uncomfortable. Sometimes I interact with someone, and as they walk away, I think, what if I said or did something that unintentionally hurt them in some way? Because I know that's happened to me, where you just fixate, fixate on some stupid, tiny thing, and it's horrible, and the thought that I might just be spreading pain, like my feelings are somehow contagious. It's terrifying. So I wish I at least knew uh, if they were. Have you shared these things with others? I don't feel close enough to anyone to tell them these things. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better, but also more afraid and a little bit aroused. And like I shouldn't be making that joke. Sorry. There's nothing wrong with making that joke. Um, it sounds like you're living in your head a lot and, uh, and you could benefit from connecting connecting to people and um, I, th- I throw the idea that you're going to be this way forever out of your mind. That is that is one of the worst things that we can tell ourselves is that the, the pain or the feeling stuck that we're in is going to be that way forever. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself needless and selfish. I'm a fan of his already right out of the gate. He had me at needless. Uh, but his love addiction, he writes, I love this one. Why have I been taking long drives and smoking cigarettes while listening to depressing music for five, uh, for three months, you ask? Because she looked at me funny. That is, that could be a t-shirt. Why have I been taking long drives and smoking cigarettes while listening to depressing music for three months, you ask? She looked at me funny. Oh, that is, that is beautiful. Snapshot from his life. My friends are always trying to set me up with women. They tell me, I know you're nervous, but just go up to her and be like, how you doing? What they don't understand is that I'm not just nervous. I mostly walk around feeling hollow and like I'm made of glass. I feel like the slightest breeze could just shatter me, and yet I'm still standing. I just wish I would finally shatter, and then I would just be swept into a corner and my friends would think I prefer it that way, when in reality, I'm too fucking ashamed to ask, to even ask the dustpan to hold me. Buddy, it sounds like there might be some depression in there because when my depression is really fucking bad, that is exactly how how I feel as I walk around just feeling hollow and um, just like a ghost. I feel like a ghost, like like bed is the only place. You know, you know how like vampires got to get back in their coffin. When I'm depressed, I feel like that that's what my bed is and there was probably something else good to follow that up with but my my, my brain just completely fucking went to screensaver this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself forever masked she writes um when i was 16 i was having an affair with a married older man of 24 I wouldn't call that an affair, by the way. Um, I'd call that sexual abuse. But anyway, uh, due to circumstances of our, quote, relationship, family functions were spent together. There was one particular night when we went to a function and all ended up in different vehicles for the drive home. He and I ended up with about seven others in a van. One of those seven just happened to be my mom. As we sat in the back bench seat sharing a blanket, he grabbed my hand and put it over his jeans on top of his penis. At this point, we'd never done anything but flirted. This was the very first time I had ever 
had my hand on a man's penis that was as consensual as it could be for my age. I remember being turned on and in disbelief that he, quote, wanted me. As the drive home continued, I was snapped back to reality and the fact that my mom was sitting to the right of me and had no clue what was happening under that blanket. She went even further to have a mother-daughter moment and tell me how proud she was of me. I think that was the first time she ever told me that as a teenager, and I'm sure it will always be remembered as a truly awfulsome moment. Thank you for sharing that. This is uh, from the Body Shame survey filled out by a guy who calls himself The Fool. What do you like or dislike about your body? He writes, fucking back hair. I look like a goddamn ape. Who wants to be with a pudgy, hairy, emotionally unstable, broken man? This is a tremendous source of shame for me, especially when sleeping with a new partner. It's a particular feeling of my wanting to release myself fully into a much-desired and needed sexual engagement, but countered with the incessant wrenching in my head that tells me that she may, when seeing that gorilla-like, seemingly oafish physique, be disgusted and have to either flat-out reject me or begrudgingly go ahead with the act in revulsion so as to not hurt my feelings. Either way, I feel shame, which sucks because I really like sex. There are women who dig hairy guys. So, you know, maybe there's a, a, on a dating website, you could fill that out. Um, And I think that the the thing to um, maybe put your energy into is, you know, you described yourself as emotionally unstable and broken. Why don't you see what you can do to, Shore, shore that up. And um, that's the stuff that is going to keep somebody uh, wanting to be around you. This is a shame and secret survey. And this was filled out by, how are we on time? Doesn't matter. It's my podcast. How do you like that? This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Killjoy. And... Um, she is a bisexual. Um, that sounded weird. She is a bisexual. Why don't I follow that up with, um, she hangs out with the blacks. Uh, it just felt weird. She is bisexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. She writes, I was repeatedly molested by my older male cousin when I was nine years old. His female little sister, who was my age, was simultaneously molested by my older brother. We were all on bunk beds in my brother's room. We did it all the time. I've talked to my therapist about my part in it, but I've never talked about the fact that my brother was involved because it makes me sick to my stomach. I was also repeatedly assaulted by my boyfriend when I was a junior in high school, and I still have PTSD even though it's been five years. I have nightmares every single night, reliving various times he abused me. My junior year of college, so last year, I was raped by a guy I was seeing. The best part uh, is that he claims to be a feminist, and when it came out that my university is being federally investigated for mishandling rape cases, he posted a Facebook status. Um, I posted that it was... He posted on a Facebook status, I posted that it was disgusting how men treat women and how systemic the issue is and all that shit. The stuff he was saying was spot on, but it was real rich coming from him. 
And lastly, I was raped by a waiter at a local bar less than two months ago. This one is obviously the most vivid for me, and it still makes me sick whenever I think about it. This is an excerpt from my story that was shared at a protest slash march at my university last month. I've tried several times to form the words to explain what happened, but my language always seemed seems to fail me when I need it most. All I can do is feel his bristly mustache and hear that stupid daft punk song in the background. Ironic, really. The song about getting lucky playing during a rape. I swear he moved to the beat of it. I can hardly picture his face. I don't know the color of his eyes because I couldn't bear to look in them, but I remember how his bony fingers felt inside me. I showered five times the day after, but I still, but I could still smell him. The first three nights, I did not sleep at all. Now I have nightmares. I relive my rape every single night. I have been raped before, but never by a stranger. I didn't think anything could feel worse than being taken advantage of by a friend, but I am a thousand times filthier now. I couldn't fight back. I couldn't speak other than to mumble, no, no, no. I couldn't do anything more than silently cry as he was on top of me, behind me, inside me, and I have no idea what I'm supposed to do now other than pretend like it didn't happen and move on. I've done it before. I can do it again. I have to if I want to survive. And End quote. Um... She's been emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, as I mentioned above, I was in an abusive relationship in high school. My boyfriend uh, raped, hit, and yelled at me on a regular basis. When that wasn't enough, he started to get creative. One time he tied me to the bed and repeatedly threw tennis balls at my stomach, all because he lost a tennis match. The last time he hurt me during our relationship was the absolute worst. He wanted to have sex, and I didn't, and he started to get angry, so I tried to leave. He grabbed me and threw me on the bed. He yelled at me to stay there, so stupidly I did. He went outside, grabbed a can of gasoline, and came back up. He poured the gasoline all over me and grabbed a lighter out of my bag, which gave him yet another excuse to get mad at me because he told me I wasn't allowed to smoke cigarettes anymore. He held the lighter over my body, and I knew he absolutely had it in him to kill me. I didn't even have the ability to watch watch my life flash before my eyes. Nothing was going through my head. My eyes were just glued to the lighter. I was convinced I was about to die, but for whatever reason, he didn't. I guess seeing the intense fear in my eyes got him off enough to calm him down. Whatever the reason, I'm still here. A week later, he broke up with me for another girl. I still get so mad at myself when I think about how I'm not even the one that broke up with him. He broke up with me disgusting. I wish I could say that was the last time I interacted with him, but last summer he contacted me again. He said he missed me and that he was on meds and that he still loved me. When I told him I wanted nothing to do with him, he got mad. He said he knew where I lived and that he had been in my city looking for me. He had roses to give me. He always gave me roses to say sorry uh, when we were together. I hate roses. After I spent a few weeks in terror, paranoid that he was following me, I decided I couldn't run from him forever, so I met up with him. And what happened? He was super nice. We had coffee, and I wouldn't let him buy my drink, which irritated him, but it was fine. Then we slept together. Afterwards, we were lying in bed, and he asked why I wouldn't let him buy my drink, and I said, because I have two jobs, and I can buy my own damn drink. And he mumbled something about feminism, and I got mad. And then he tried to cheer me up, but I wasn't having it. And that made me mad. And next thing I know, I'm leaving there with a black eye. I still can't believe after years have gone by, I went back. I'm not only 
I not only went back, but I slept with him. I'm beginning to think he will always have some form of control over me. I will never escape. Any positive experiences with your abusers? With my cousin and brother, absolutely. I have a great relationship with both as long as I don't think about the whole molesting thing. With my ex, yes, he was the most charming, handsome man. Uh, now he's a frat bro, go figure. It makes it complicated enough that four years later, I let him back into my life. I still have to force myself to not respond to texts or calls. I still love him even though I know I shouldn't. I still think that he loves me more than any other boyfriend ever has. Maybe it's just so intense that we can't control it, you know? Maybe we're meant to be together and I just need to accept the lows in order to get the highs. Please go seek help for love addiction. Please. Uh, and and to process the horrible, horrible traumas that you've experienced. Um, as I mentioned on the uh, in the interview with Maddie, um, Google the uh, Rape and Incest National National Network. You can get free counseling, um, and you absolutely, absolutely should. Um, Darkest thoughts, I, I love rough sex. I love porn that is offensively degrading to women and it makes me feel so disgusting inside because that shit has happened to me. I've been on the receiving end of that, but I fucking get off on watching it. It makes me so sick. Darkest secrets, I've never told anyone, not a therapist or a friend or anyone that my brother was involved in the molesting thing. My parents know about my cousin, not by my choice, uh, but they don't know he was involved. I will never tell a single soul. Um... And that is one of the worst things that we can do in our healing is to hide those things that are really hard to share. Those are the things that when we share it with somebody who's safe and appropriate, those are the things that kickstart our healing. So I really hope you take th that off the table and share it with, hopefully, your, oh, it, this next sentence, uh, shows that you do have a therapist. Uh, I haven't told my therapist or psychiatrist or anyone except the people uh, I do it with about my coke relapse. Uh, two summers ago, before I was involuntarily admitted to a psych ward, I was snorting it several times a day. I had withdrawals after 18 hours without it. I just relapsed after 10 months clean and I feel so awful about it, but I can't stop and I don't know what to do. I think processing the trauma that happened to you is going to be linked with your ability to stay sober. I think until you start talking about that stuff is really hard to talk about with your therapist. I think, um, anyway, I'm, I'm beginning to run my mouth, but, um, what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to, to my most recent there, um, recent rapist, fuck you. I miss that bar. To my rapist from last year, fuck you and your polyamorous relationships. To my ex, I fucking hate red roses. Also, your sister isn't even good at soccer. <laughs> oh, your mom had to sleep with the coach so she could get playing time, asshole. To my brother, have you forgotten? What, if anything, do you wish for? For the insurance company, get it shit together so I can get Abilify again, since right now it costs $950. Um... I've talked to a couple of people that are on Abilify and they're doing fine on it. I would just say to anybody who has to go off it, buckle up um, and make sure you stay in contact with your psychiatrist. 
because it was fucking horrifying. Um, also, uh, I wish to get my borderline personality and PTSD under control so I can get through my last semester of college and actually live my life peacefully. Have you shared these things with others? Some of them, uh, for the most part, my confessions of rape and stuff have been fine, but the shit about the hospital and having borderline personality, people just look at you differently after, like they have to walk on eggshells around you. How do you feel after writing these things down? Mixed up. Like on one hand, it's really nice to let it out and I always feel stronger after sharing my story. It's such a high, but on the other hand, I just feel sick. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Your life is not over. We can heal from this. It's fucking bullshit because we have to work hard every fucking day to even get out of bed in the morning, but we are stronger stronger people for it. I'm not saying we are better than people who don't struggle with mental illness, but God damn it, if we aren't a bunch of strong, badass motherfuckers, we can do this. And if you don't think you can, try reaching out to others. Nothing makes me feel stronger than when I share my story with people through rallies and marches and speeches. You are not alone, no matter how deeply fucked you feel you are. Any comments to make the podcast better? Not really. I love this podcast, even though it makes me cry. It works sometimes. So fuck you for that. That's another email I love getting is people that um, cry and uh, try not to cry when they're listening to it at work. Um, I'm just sending you some love, kill joy, and um, open up about all that stuff with your therapist. Really encourage you to. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, Why the fuck am I so fat? She writes, Last night I had a meltdown completely out of nowhere. The kind uh, my meds are supposed to prevent, but for some reason aren't at the moment. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being fine and 10 being I'm slitting my wrist as we speak, I started out uh, as a 4, but after several hours of uncontrollable crying, I was approaching 7 to 8 territory. The sobs and snots and tears were getting so bad that I started choking, and in the process of trying desperately to get oxygen into my lungs, I got the bright idea to also relieve some of the pressure in my ears by closing my mouth and blowing air from my semi-functioning lungs up into my sinuses to try to unblock my eustachian tube. Suddenly, I heard a loud pop and my left ear exploded in pain. Watery mucus began flowing out my ear, which, beneath the pain, was most definitely not clogged up anymore. Yes, I had ruptured my own eardrum by crying too hard. So far, this just sounds awful, but the physical pain plus the distraction of desperate Googling to having to call the 24-hour medical helpline to figure out if I needed to go to the ER. Turns out the answer is no. Ruptured eardrums heal on their own in a week or two. You don't need to see a doctor unless things get infected. Managed to jar me out of my gaping black hole of depression and get me calm enough and stable enough to eventually fall asleep. My ear still hurts like the dickens, but well, I'm alive, so I reckon this counts as reasonably awfulsome. That is awesome. That is awesome. And uh, before I bid you adieu, I want to give another plug for uh, the free arts program here in Los Angeles. Um, I told you last week about the the program they do where they um, bring art to kids while they're waiting to testify against their abusers in the courthouse. They also offer a a weekly mentor program, and I'm just going to read 
their description of it. They write, uh, Free Arts Weekly Mentor Program engages small groups of children in weekly 90-minute art sessions focused around a broad-based theme over the course of 8 to 12 weeks. Led by carefully screened and trained volunteer mentors, Weekly Mentor allows children to develop and nurture self-esteem as they create healthy relationships with positive adult role models in a safe environment. And um, uh, if you don't know about free arts, free arts uh, inspires hope and self-esteem in abused, impoverished, and homeless children through creative art programs. Through dance, music, painting, and other art, children ages 4 to 18 find new ways to channel emotions, develop positive communication skills, and spark renewed trust with adults. And free arts serves nearly 27,000 children every year through more than 500 uh, carefully screened, selected, and trained volunteer mentors who together donate more than 10,000 hours annually. It is just a great, great organization. And they could use money and they could use volunteers. So uh, go to their website, freearts.org, and uh, pitch in because they're doing a good thing. And thank you guys so much for um, another week of uh, building this thing together and um, supporting each other and I really appreciate it and I hope if you're out there and you're feeling stuck you know that there's there's help and there's hope if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and you are most most definitely not alone and thank you for listening everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely